Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and Marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today's X's for Podcast is sort of a mini crossover event with the Fantastic Four. Marvel's first family interact with all three titles we cover today. Excalibur 23 sees Doctor Doom, Defenders 2 sees Galactus and his mom, before Marvel's first family themselves make an appearance over in Shang-Chi number 4. But kicking things off is Excalibur, which seems to be moving toward the inevitable conclusion that all X-Books are heading toward with Inferno in December. Now, the magic threads here continue to build on things that have been stretching back to the earliest days of House and Powers, and we couldn't be more excited to see where they go. And if you guys like what you hear, you'll probably like what you see, so don't forget to check us out over on Twitter and YouTube at X's for Podcast. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm your co-host, Arturo. You can find me over at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Hi, I'm I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me over on uh, Twitter, Instagram, uh, all over the place, kind of really. <laughs> but don't worry, come on over, start a conversation with me. I've got tons of opinions if you haven't already figured this one out. Hey everyone, this is Dante. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Inferno Magic. That's magic with a K. Hi guys, it's Broadway. You can follow me on Twitter at BWay3RD. Um, and next up, he's not just Juan Chill, he's Juan Cho. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, you can find me on Twitter at LostRico, and very excited to be here. So back to you, Arturo. And I'm Arturo. Welcome to the show. Today we are talking about Excalibur 23, written by Tinny Howard, Marcus Toe, with color artist Eric Adseniega, letterer, friend of the pod, Ariana Mar, and Tom Muller on design. Gather the gang, we're going on another D&D quest. This time we're taking Uncle Doom to Otherworld. <laughs> Raven, kick us off. How did you enjoy this merry little fairy tale adventure into Otherworld? I am so amazed that he showed up with his dime store rent-a-renaissance-fair ass and decided to mouth off like he did, and Betsy let his head stay on his shoulders. Like, well, one oh, thing God. Doom is going to do is pontificate <laughs> and, and just come with the, with the grandiose speeches and monologues and like be haughty as all hell like i am a diehard doom fan from day one like doom forever i enjoy doom he because you always, take, you always know what you're gonna get he's all right he's always going to be doing the absolute mer- wor- worst he's and a stunt most queen at the same time. <laughs> he's a stunt he does queen. he do be stunt. he's a he's a diva doom is like no others like doom can get away with this kind of event very few other characters in the entire marvel universe could pull this off and yeah know, i think he's the only one with uh, bigger, bigger brass it. ones than sinister <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you're right. You are right. You're absolutely right, though. This is like when you have a really high player during your campaign, and you're all like low-level players, because that's what Doom is. He's the highest level player on this board. Doom is basically Doom is basically like can the yeah I, I'm not I don't really know you know D and D yeah me neither but like can the dungeon master that's like orchestrating the game have a character on the board because that's who Doom would like just the overpowered like hand of God figure on the board yeah Doom 
I, I love that Doom is like, I don't need anybody's help. And yet, you know, Excalibur is sitting there. Welcome to Braddock Isle. You can't get through. Like, they're basically customs agents, you know? And like, they, they strike a deal with Doom to, well, yeah, I guess we should get into the baby snatching of it all. I know that was definitely, uh, you know, a source of, of conversation this week. And, and I hear the people that are saying that, like, it's not a good look when you're portraying Doom, you know, who is kind of, you know, a Romani character, like doing something like this is not a great look you know i'm sorry have they doom not been paying attention to doom right. as just a character right. like, like it does it in text. i have He's never like, thought of he, he yeah. literally says everybody and everything is a tool like child mutant god alien whatever like well i had yeah, i had no idea about any fuck. sort of romani background because i just always thought he was you know the dime store dictator of of a tiny walled off country that he's running very much under his oppressive thumb i did not have any idea of his romani background at all so maybe i think it's his mom that's oh yeah i believe so but i i will say to your point raven like it it is like i i don't know i feel like if this is what really says to you that doom is a bad person there's (laughs) decades of canon that you should look at first like he did rewrite the universe in his own image and erase reed richards and steal his family in battle world like i'm not saying that that makes any of his actions okay but i am saying that like he has a brand and he stick to it like he's not a good person but he is someone that krakoa and wakanda and atlantis are forced to deal with so it's not like he's going anywhere but like like i get i get the anxiety around baby snatching and romani people and displacement and, and things like that but i don't know like i don't look at killmonger and go like ah like scary black person i go like no he's just a bad person they don't always have to be a vessel for their like ethnic or identity group they can like be romani and still be shitty yeah and no well, i mean hasn't he set to, up to gulags doom for like yes yes moral, moral 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 yeah, yeah <laughs> you shouldn't be looking to doom for like you know moral any sort of like, moral like, compass <laughs> yeah and you know and like at the same time i will say like there are some villains that are just irredeemably worse like Red Skull, I'm mm. looking at you. Like horrible, mm-hmm. terrible villains. Doom, uh, yeah, he had that baby in his arms, but you know what? That baby was safe. Because Doom might talk a mean no, game. No, no, was it? He said he would he skin every single game. mutant he had right, and come right. in with and, his yeah. Doom bots covered in them. Like he uh, made open might come threats. To that. Like, it might come to that. Uh... But there's also a good chance that he does the right thing. You know, he's. <laughs> Is Valeria's uncle doing? Relatively speaking, the right thing. Like he doesn't no, have to skin everyone, but he <sighs> will put that on the table as an option. So you might as well take him just bring the baby. I feel like that's Doom's logic. It's not my moral compass, but it's not. It could be worse. I mean, to be honest, like this this is pretty tame for Doom. Like he was very yeah. restrained in this entire Civilized. issue. Yeah. Like, I mean, he he talked, you know. He Statesman. He, he talks his, you know, shit for sure. He only but showed like, up with four like doom action, That's... <laughs> Yeah, only four. Yeah, times. but I mean, like he, like relatively yeah. compared to other actions oh. that he's taken before, even in in recent appearances, like he was yeah. relatively like a, you know, I don't know, <laughs> reserved by by yeah, standards. No, yeah, he literally just like kind of walked up to the walked up to the door and knocked, and you know, like grudgingly followed the rules. 
I give you a present baby. <laughs> right. I can use the baby. Well, right, we're getting or stuck maybe on this I baby. can think of another way. <laughs> Well, okay, fine. I don't like babies. We don't know if we've located the parents, but listen, the last thing this book needs is another goddamn baby. Sorry, show. Yeah, we don't. We, we don't Sorry. need Jubilee. I don't want. Here. I don't. Please, I don't need your show. Go hate mail either. Like, I, I don't want anything bad to happen to the child, but he just doesn't help the plot move along. Unlike Duke, when Duke shows up, you know you're going to have a good guest star for the episode, and 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 he didn't disappoint, and he wasn't our only guest star. As soon as as we make it into other world who else but Megan flutters on her little fairy oh. wings and, and joins the D&D party how did you guys feel to see Megan she honestly failed her disguise check but nobody had the heart to tell her that bitch turning your hair black ain't that that big a, a disguise check right. right there it was kind of cute to me though it was kind of did I like I, I liked I liked yeah everything. it was I liked the color fun. but come on I mean, this is why your child is smarter than you. You have to remember that Megan was raised by TV, so she's not like the brightest. And yet she has like the smartest kid in Avalon. Like, yeah, but (laughs) when I look at the parents, how did the kid get that smart? All I'm asking. I see now that now if we're gonna have a baby around, that's how you have it. Maggie. Maggie's a shit. I won't hear any slander about Mag. Like I stand Maggie. She she's awesome. She's around. Dragon. She's almost as good as <laughs> that's how smart she is. I want to see Maggie interact with Doom. Are you kidding me? Doom would live for Maggie. Doom would be an, an Uncle Doom. You know, she would, for an she Uncle would Doom? know. She would burn like into the Valeria ground in the most you know. beautiful way, and I would be there for it. That was a missed opportunity, honestly. Like Maggie and doom like going back and forth uh and i'm sure that doom would be very impressed by her too yeah doom would live oh yeah absolutely i feel like she would remind him of valeria oh absolutely yeah he he would be like you have to meet valeria (laughs) he would like be arranging arranging a play date when when doom's like threatening the to let to let him in Mm -hmm. i thought it was very funny that richter said you know i know magic too as if you're not facing against the greatest sorcerer in the marvel universe right One of the greatest. Yeah, I am, it was I am like, definitely oh, not going to okay, call Richter. him the greatest. Oh, calm down. I, I, but yeah, Richter is like, I know magic too. Bitch, you're a party clown compared to Doom. And even I'll admit that. Like, yeah. <laughs> Doom is like, I'm sorry, what? When Doctor Strange kicks the bucket and there's if there's an opening for Sorcerer Supreme, I think Doom is like in the top five contenders for it. Like Doom is right. not to be trifled. No. Like Doom is No, he is you know he is not a contender for Sorcerer Supreme. He should be because Sorcerer of the, Supreme. Because Again, of the selfishness I, not, aspect. Right. Yes, I'm not looking to his you know moral compass, but I'm just saying as mm-hmm. far as being adept at magic and sorcery, like Doom is not, you know, okay. Doom is not playing with little spells like Richter is like Doom is on another level. So I mean he literally called it peasant magic and like that's the kind of stuff that i eat up and i did laugh at that but i'm also like doom shut up they're trying to help you and since you're not casting any magic and you don't know where shit is supposed to go shut up and let them just do the work let the peasants do the work for you like you hired them to do duh I also like what the Doom uh, threw some shade at Betsy for Betsy being oh, all a over magic the magic and assassin in X-Force back in the day. 
and like yep. that was funny too. Like, there was some really good quips. And that's <laughs> yeah, funny. their whole their whole interaction throughout the issue was just priceless. Like I I I love seeing. Here's the thing. Like in when we're in an Excalibur book, I'm always happiest when I'm when we're in other world. Like because like I like I this is what I'm expecting. It's going to be hijinks and you know whatever. So like yeah, let's go for it. Like I love being in other world and I love Betsy being able to like really like fill this this space as Captain Britain. Like this is Agreed. truly who she is now. Like and it's like a throwback to like the roots of the character way before you know the body swap and whatnot. And it feels new and it feels fresh, but it also feels you know classic in a way. It's just it's so cool. Like Excalibur is not my favorite book, but I enjoyed the hell out of this. You know, and and every every issue for the past couple of them have been pretty good. So yeah, the best parts of this book were Doom and Betsy just going back and forth about everything. That was the best part of the issue. Jim Jaspers added a nice little twist to that dynamic too. The three of them having tea was pretty good. Mm -hmm. Back to like the very beginning of the book for a second, which is this like full page of Betsy sleeping and doing like precognition and all this sort of stuff because I think that forgotten about Betsy's power set at times in the era of like psychic swords and whatnot, but she dreams of like Merlin and Morgan Le Fay of Pete Wisdom's assassination. Morgan leaving malice's rebirth something with the council and seemingly moira and then her brothers and i think coven akaba and like to me i think that's interesting because one obviously central to kruko is this whole no precog thing and so like where does that leave betsy but also again it says that a lot of this is heading toward the inverno s collision course that like krakoa itself is on like a really like precarious track and I think that that's illuminated by like Kavanakaba and severing the treaty and whatnot like Krakoa's internal structures are fragile but now even it's like standing in both other world and in earth are like fragile and I think that that is something that's kind of been slid through a lot of the X books but is something that should be noted and like really concerned like things are actually not great for Krakoa right now Things Besides are not Scarlet great. Dying. Yeah. Ooh, ooh, too soon. Like everybody's partying, but it's like, guys, like actually, like shit's on fire. Right. Like, yeah, we just had the the gala, and and we just, you know, terraformed Mars, and like, there's good reason to celebrate, and things are good, but yeah, there's definitely the cracks in the foundation are like are, are really starting to show, and you know, I, I think we can't even discuss this without kind of addressing, you know, in recent news with just coming out of the X office with with Hickman leaving although we hear he's leaving and then you know marvel unlimited with the x-men stories that's now out unlimited so who knows like what the plans are going forward like obviously they're willing to hold some of that info back from us between him leaving after inferno with everything that's like coming to a head with other books being announced as being wrapped up aliens i'm looking at you still devastated about it you know i know we're all hoping that this is kind of like okay maybe this is wrapping up this era and then there will be a bunch of number ones and kind of new creative teams and moving forward and i'm sure that's you know kind of eventually what's going to happen anyways but it's just sad to see some of these things wrapping up because i've just been enjoying you know the week in week out of agreed this era i mean they've talked about like these ages of krakoa right and i feel like what's interesting is that this age and i i see this so clearly in excalibur but like this age is really built on the old model of mutant dome which is like let this like small group of people kind of run the show and everybody else 
else will do whatever they're told, whether it's like Xavier sending people out or Magneto sending out the Brotherhood to do this or that. There's like all these sort of like puppeteers of mutantdom that they've like sort of like, ah, they just lead things. And like, yeah, Scott might go a little off sometimes, but like, you know, it's fine. And I feel like what is happening now, especially again, going into Inferno, going into like the end or, or like the end of whatever the storyline is, a lot of these structures again are like coming to uh, to their like logical conclusion and i feel like as like a politics junkie i'm always sort of interested by like citizenship and like what it means to be a part of a nation and i feel like what we're seeing excalibur is kind of a model for it but i think we're seeing like the need for citizens of krakoa to be a little more engaged as to what is going on like excalibur is a sort of citizen based unit it's not elected it was not like formally put together by council sanction and i i wonder if that's going to be more of the model i mean even x X factor sort of distance themselves from the council um but it really is mutants like taking up this role like all right i'm captain britain well let's like do that you know what i mean i'm just interested to see like how that dynamic changes or grows yeah because it feels like the part the time for partying and like revelry is kind of over right that's the intro to krakoa but now as as arturo said we've seen a lot of the cracks in in the firmament i think magneto said back in the in way of x i think no it was scott in x-men 7 and like mutants not just like leaders but like day-to-day mutants going about their own things they have to start taking responsibility for their citizenship too because they they can't just go and drink and fuck and whatever but they should also you know be trying to build their nation and build their communities and excalibur is like some sort of neighborhood watch for other world but I think Krakoa needs more of those. Like groups of mutants coming together because they know it's the right thing. It's it's funny that you said Neighborhood X, Watch Excalibur. when they've got uh, thieves on the team. Well, oh, well yeah. yeah, Neighborhood Watch, but they're also <laughs> like, they're like the British team, but like the UK is kind of like washed their hands of Krakoa. Like there's all of these kind of conflicting and overlapping loyalties when it comes to the mantle of Captain Britain. Like she's, right. you know, she's loyal to Saturnine and she's also, you know, loyal to her brother who's you know the the king of avalon currently and she's also loyal to krakoa and she's you know trying to be a a superhero right like just in general she's just out there trying to like do the right thing and uh yeah it's an interesting place where betsy and the rest of the team have found themselves speaking of saturnine it was a bit of a missed opportunity to have saturnine and doom talk that would have been great that would have been great that would have been great. yeah i feel like she would not have allowed him to roam freely about other world like just getting oh, stuff yeah, like no. she would have been like no you're going to jail until i figure out what you're up to and then maybe i'll let you out <laughs> she would have made like a dramatic entrance she would have like let doom play around and think he's not being watched meanwhile she's just like watching the whole thing in hd and then she right. makes her grand entrance saturnine loves That's a good so reveal good. right but I did find it funny as you're going into the, the crooked market, you decide to split the team. You and, should never split the party. Right? And you've got you Captain Britain and Doom going off to talk to Jeffries. And then the rest of these yahoos decide to go into a gambling den. Jubilee, Megan, Richter, Gambit. I thought there was one other person with them. But, oh, what? Like, 
Like that that was like the worst group to let wander on their own. They need a terrible a group to let wander on their own. Like <laughs> right. everything about that group are people that get into trouble. Right. Oh my god. And they don't and have just money. When, and just when you and think that's what I want to know. How do you not worse, have money? The Furies show up from the, the uh, Forge Masters Furies. We love oh. we love a good deadly automaton. This is fun. This is we're on a D D adventure, so of course some bad guys show up and start blowing things up. Like I don't even question it with this book. I'm just like, okay, cool. What about you, Dante? Did you get excited by the explosions in the market? I don't know if excited was the right feeling for for me, but nothing about it was surprising for sure. I mean, exactly like you said, you, if you split up the party, you know that something bad is going to happen. Something's going to go wrong. But I mean, it was all really fun and exciting, I think, overall. Like, I was enjoying the scenes with, with Jim Jaspers and, and Doom and kind of that back and forth. Like, I think what's really fun about this issue is the, these dynamics that we wouldn't normally see, right? Like, I'm not familiar with Betsy and Doom interacting. Jim Jaspers and Doom interacting. Like, Doom is, is actually a really fun mix in the whole thing. And so, especially like throwing in a, an enemy like the Furies, like, it's just like, oh, th this whole thing is just a shit show and it's super delightful. Also, Doom Morgana's ex or Morgan's ex. I love Ugh. that. I love that. Ugh. I love that. I buy Ugh. it. Honey, the no. The community is so like self-involved and and messy. Like I just love that. Like it's like, oh, you go to a whole another realm, and like, ah, this person dated Doom, and like they just got replaced by Betsy's brother, and Betsy used to date this person. Like I just love, oh, and like the Queen of Otherworld has like wants to bone Betsy's brother. Like I just love <laughs> that everybody in the superhero community is so messy. <laughs> I, I yeah, and I love that we're still like that, you know, because Excalibur was always kind of like that. Excalibur has always been like messy. It's not even like they're the sorority and the frat kind of kids. They're like the the stoner and the dropout kind of kids. Just, just, oh my god, the, the like unthieving in the market kind of kids. Yeah. <laughs> the term is they're friends of Mordred, which we, kind of was oh, like a whole thing. We stand. We stand. I, I, yeah, I that, sort of, uh, I sort the of friends stand of that Mordred term? kind of. Okay, so it kind of gave me uh, friends of Dorothy vibes and. Mm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Friends of Mordred. So Mordred Which, for those being, who don't know, was like an old code word for gay man. Yes. Right, based on the, uh, the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. You were somewhere over the rainbow. Gay man or whatever. You're, right, yeah. right. Friends of Mordred, which kind of, you know, sounded, again, kind of like that. But why was Jim Jaspers not attacked? Because I thought he was also a mutant. He is. Or reality, reality But they didn't, they yeah, didn't he's, target him at all. Like, I, I couldn't even tell you difference between his power set and Jamie Braddock. I don't even know, like, because I think they're both Omega level reality workers. So, like, at that point, like, I oh, mean, God, I just I never assume, wondered. like, they're not attacking Jim Jaspers because nobody's going to attack Jim Jaspers. Jim Jaspers probably, you know, led them here. And he's probably behind it, is my assumption. Um, but I have no idea. I mean, it is interesting, again, like, there's, like, there's a couple of, like, sort of, you know, Game of Thronesy political intrigue questions going on in Excalibur. So there's, like, clearly the Saturnine usurping Merlin question. Arthur being removed from the throne. That's another question. The remaking of Otherworld, you know, and into these like realms. There's some contextual questions. And this is one of the funny things about Excalibur is that it's so like Betsy as this tomboy, like first like being roped into all of this and then like running in brashly. Like now she's in the thick of it and she's like, I'm 
you know, Captain Britain, like, I have authority. And it's like, yeah, but they feel comfortable killing you. So, like, clearly there's some other stuff going on. Like, how is it that Jim Jaspers is not a target? How, why is it that, you know, Avalon and Savalith are beefing to the point where they're assassins being sent after Megan? Like, there's something broader here that is very messy. Yeah, just the idea that, like, the Fury would just be out and about, like, trying to murder Captain Britain, who is the hand of Queen Opal Lunar Saturnine, is kind of crazy. So, like, the question is, why? And I'm sure that will be sorted out, but like that, like, really intrigued me. Yeah, and that, that was, like, one of the first things I thought of. <laughs> I mean, the way Tinny's dropping Mordred, it certainly feels like somebody we should know. So I appreciate that there's, like, gravity to the situation. Like, we haven't even seen him yet, but he feels like a big character. I love the reveal at the end. Little conversation between Dune and Betsy. It's the letter from Dune, but then Betsy's having a chat with Meg and talking over, about like, a Megan scrying is. pool. Yes, over the scrying pool. I was struck by Megan talking about, you know, her heritage as being both of Otherworld, a fairy, and a mutant for the next year. I thought that was, I, I enjoyed that, that she was just, like, kind of spelling that out in case, you know, there was any any doubt. Just kind of, like, reinforcing that canon. But then, you know, it kind of ends with this cliffhanger of, is Arthur's son, Mordred, is he one of us? Is he a mute? Oh, what do you guys think? I think it's, it would be very interesting if Arthur, whenever he comes back, like, actual, just not on, like, a cameo from the last issue, if he's actually, like, against mutants, or witch breed, as they call them, because, in like, in some of the myths from, like, Arthurian lore, I mean, like, if, if you've read uh, Once in Future from Karen Gillen and Dan Mora, that book is about, like, King Arthur coming back to Britain, like, to drive out foreigners or something like that. And this sort of feels like that in a way, because Mordred, in some of the myths, is the one that kills Arthur or sends him to Avalon after, you know. So, so I'm not sure if, if Tin is going to draw more from, like, Arthurian canon. When it comes to, like, Arthurian myths or whatever, yeah, I know the bare minimum, you know. As long as Tinny keeps kind of laying it out like this, I'm buying it, you know. Like, as she's telling the story, I don't even really need that kind of, that stuff in the background. I'm just, I'm into it, the way she's laying it out. I like this mystery about Arthur's son. Yeah, I'm also intrigued to see where this goes, in part because Merlin has Arthur captive that gives him a claimant to the throne in counterbalance to jamie morgan lefay is probably also going to make some sort of claim to the throne and then you have possibly another mutant in mordred who probably has his own constituency that would like to see him on the throne as like the successor to king arthur yeah i'm not sure how this all works out for everybody unless they all get married i just don't see this like working out super well oh i don't want to see that clusterfuck of a registry <laughs> it's interesting that saturnine is not in this and that we really don't have a sense of her agenda here because i think that's going to really drive where betsy falls as as you pointed to our arturo earlier like there's questions of loyalty here like who is she actually loyal to and also we never get i mean again like teeny has done, done such an interesting job, job of like 
dropping us in in media res from like Excalibur number one. Like we just get things started with Morgan waging war on Saturnine, but we never get an understanding as to why. So the question for me is like, what what is the inciting event? And I feel like when Betsy figures that out, that will determine who she should be loyal to. And it may not be Saturnine. <laughs> like could be a good chance that like she had a hand in fucking this whole situation up and Betsy's gonna have to like fight against her. But yeah, I'm just not sure how you can have like multiple claimants to a throne and it work out successfully. I guess you could send someone to Dryador. I don't know. You you could always ask who has a better story, you know, and choose right. that way. Well, I mean, you can you can make regents, you can make consorts, you can you can gift land and whatnot. But yeah, when it comes to claimants, like especially if they're all on a basically even playing field, that's that'd be hard to figure out. I just my question is, why does Otherworld have problems with mutants? Because Otherworld is filled with fucking fairies, magic, all kinds of stuff like. Why? Why? Why is the why is the mute? Why is the mutant aspect a problem? That is a damn good question, Raven. And and I want to say one of my favorite things about the the data pages was Josh. Just Josh, please says mutants are fine. We're really good people. And I guess I hoped when I came here to live, I could feel normal and I wouldn't have to deal with the same stuff we do back home. My favorite part of the, all the data pages yeah. was that little bit because that's. Josh from over in wasn't it New Mutants? Uh, New Mutants. Yeah. Yes, the dude with the big horns, and yeah, he's. I love that. I love that tying back to that story, and yeah, and it sucks that mutants are dealing with this. This whole witch breed racism is uh, some bullshit. And I get the feeling that a lot of it is the in in the minds of the lay people, um, the chaos that witch breed bring. Like in their mind, it's like okay, like we've encountered these things a couple of times, but they're not like the norm. Like mutants aren't the norm in Otherworld. And I mean, again, Saturnine is the norm, and that's chaos. But like, uh, yeah, I was about to say, mm, I'm pretty sure Saturnine is is far more chaotic and destructive than any single normal leveled mutant. Like, right. But I think that like. I think that that is a force that they're used to. Fairies are like a, a race that they're used to, right? Like you kind of know what you get and then you get these people who seemingly just rolled up, took over Avalon and then had like a light civil war in the middle of your country and almost burned the whole thing down with demons and stuff. And as a now, part of your as a part of your leader's scheme oh, to cast a love spell. So oh, definitely. And again, the question is like, what is Saturnine gaming at? Because in a lot of ways, like a lot of this isn't a good look for mutant kind. And that might be to her benefit, depending, again, how she feels about the Betsy of it all. But I would imagine that it's like, ah, it's like xenophobia, frankly. And like now they're just sort of strolling in and out. It's like, ah, these people come in and like, here's Danny Moonstar, like casting mirages and shit. And like, here's Jamie, like yelling at Muford about horses. You know what I mean? Like they like they seem, this seems deranged. And I feel like if you were a, re a regular person in Avalon or in Otherworld, I could understand people being like this is a lot like they almost killed all of us and i'm not sure why they're here 
which is not to condone their xenophobia, but there is like a right. It's not. It's not unjustified. <laughs> not not completely. Yeah. Like, and yeah, I feel like I some of it is that it. mutants don't always do the best PR <laughs> on Earth or in other worlds. They just sort of do, and then are like, okay. I thought Warren is doing a smashing job. <laughs> Yes, yeah, <laughs> as the CXO. That's we are not job. even. We are not even going. God bless. So I've been thinking about a lot of what you guys have been saying. A couple things that came to mind. Part of me wonders, Raven, to your question, like, why do they have an issue with mutants? And I can't help but wonder if maybe Arako has a big part of that. Not, maybe not what we've seen recently with Arako and Exosword, but maybe maybe back to when Arako first got transported to Ammon. I think we know that it wasn't easy for the Iraqi to get to Otherworld, but it wasn't impossible. So I wonder if maybe there was some history in that but maybe teeny is kind of playing with that uh, as a rooted idea without really explicitly putting it out there why would they hate mutants so much we don't really see a whole lot of interaction my knowledge of otherworld and merlin and saturnine like a lot of it pretty old at this point and i feel like when doom post secret wars everything was recreated i don't know that we had seen anything with otherworld or roma or merlin and so i kind of feel like this is an opportunity that the ex writers have taken to kind of re establish what that is because the whole makeup of Otherworld to me currently is so different from anything I've ever seen before. I really wonder like how much they are pulling from older stories versus creating their own idea or take on them. So I would love to chat with someone who has a bigger knowledge base on that because, you know, I see a lot of things that I'm familiar with, like, you know, in this issue, having Jim Jaspers and the Furies in the same issue, like to me, they're almost always interconnected. I feel like I've seen so many stories where it's those two entities and usually they're the ones who are the big bads going at it because nobody else can even really compare to them and here they are completely ignoring each other you know so all of it's really interesting again with what limited knowledge i have as well so i'm kind of excited to see it feels like you know where teeny is going and she's got ideas and she's playing around with these concepts making mordred i don't know that mordred has ever been known to be a mutant before but like that's a, that's kind of like a fun new concept i feel like and i'm happy to see that this is being pulled into more of that mythical Arthurian legend, you know, and like kind of establishing mutants as part of Otherworld in another sense. And it seems like maybe Mordred's power is maybe he's he's got a healing factor. Maybe he's, you know, kind of Wolverine in that regard. Or maybe his power is he comes back from the dead once he has been killed. Because it seems like that's his shtick. Like I said, I mean, when we're in an Excalibur book, the more time that we spend in Otherworld, the happier I am. Because, you know, to your point, Dante, with the whole reset, yeah, laying out Sevalith and these other areas, like, Tinny definitely drew some, you know, some history, but there was a lot of creative license, I think, take. And there's all of these kind of, like, new lands and representatives and, and, and people with different interests. And, and I think that's what makes the book so fun, is, like, we, there's still so much we don't know. There's so many stories still to to be told and so many scenes to be had to like actually explore like these other places and people but it's cool that it exists and it's cool that we're like exploring it slowly but surely yeah I i'm glad I, I feel like tinny's having fun doing this and and that's making it fun to read i think that kind of comes across and she said in interviews that she 
you know, is is a fan of Dungeons and Dragons, and you can feel that kind of joyous spirit behind it. To what Dante was saying, I mean, I'm I'm just you know doing some quick internet scouring, and it does seem like there is a gap between Secret Wars incursions era and now, and I think that is what Teeny is playing with. I also think that you know there were some discussions about the politics of the Captain Britain of it all and the sort of imperialist undertones and and whatnot, and. I think that some of the work of expanding Otherworld actually helps not deflate some of that those issues but kind of mitigate them a little bit because it's not just that this realm of magic is exclusively like british uh, psyche manifest or whatever there's like all these other places to explore and all of these like other you know peoples and complexities and i think that actually is a, a very good thing for her to do and it gives i think other creators uh, even outside of the x office more to play with right like i could see you know if somebody want to do a run on blade like you could have a whole arc of him dealing with savalith right and dealing with apocalypse's son death like that like opens doors and i feel like that to me is some of the most like important work in comics is not just to create a good story for yourself but to create a space within which other people are allowed to explore and create and that that to me feels like giving back to the art form and the industry and the franchises in a way that i really appreciate yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're exactly right with that. I mean, it's like, this is not IP that the creators own. This is this is owned by a big corporation, and there's only so much you can do. So yeah, the, the more that they can create and kind of leave toys in the sandbox for other creators to come and pick up, like, that's, that's kind of the magic of this, right? Like, there are some limitations for what the creators can do, but the magic comes in in that collaboration, like, when you don't even see it. I love when characters that were created by somebody just kind of grow in a totally different direction and it's like the stories kind of take them it's just an interesting thing about about all this shared ip that we are also heavily invested in I do think it is interesting that one, Mordred may not even know he's a mutant because mutant powers are like magical within Otherworld. So he fully could believe that whatever powers he has are just sorcery, like a unique form of sorcery, but like sorcery itself. The first data page about tensions around, you know, mutants in Otherworld is then followed. I mean, obviously this leads to the reveal of of Mordred possibly being a mutant. But it is followed, like the collective response to mutants is then followed by a specific story of a person of authority, Arthur, casting out his son, who is a mutant. And I I wonder how, you know, as king, like, you know, racist kings tend to foster racist citizenry. And I wonder, like, how his feelings of Mordred have permeated and thus created the sense that, like, which breed are bad? Like, he could have fully been the one to popularize that term, which is interesting to think about that sort of cultural transmission, if you will. Well, and weren't Mordred and Morgan Le Fay connected? Arthur's baby mama, Morgos, is Mordred's mom, and is that's also Morgan Le Fay's sister, and possibly related to Arthur. It sounds like it gets real Game of Thronesy real fast, but <laughs> probably they are all related, which would explain why they call them witch breed. Right? Wow, that is just that is one hell of a way to throw your baby mama under a bus. Is yeah, to, like, it takes like baby wow. mama to 
another level. Like, if the, like imagine if somebody trickery. was just like, oh, like she's slut breed. Like that would be a weird thing. Right? It's a really um direct way of addressing someone's origins. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's it's like one of those, wow, that's just that becomes even more racist after a point, yeah. really. Like, <laughs> yeah, the more uh, you, you say just... witch breed, the worse it sounds. Honestly. It's, it's just, not uh, a nice term. Everything about it. I feel like anytime you refer to people as breed mm-hmm. of some sort like it just yeah. doesn't it's not good yeah it's not good. <gasps> should be interesting to see what what comes from this because <laughs> now i'm on pins and needles now i have to know yeah yeah and like i like i'm dying to see what happens with mordred like but i i couldn't even fathom what the next opening scene of the next issue is like that's the fun thing about this book also is like yeah there's a certain point where i'm just like I, who knows what's gonna happen next. like i i don't know if you had told me that that this book would open with Betsy having a fever dream and Doctor Doom showing up with a baby, I would not have <laughs> believed you. Oh, yeah, crazy. no, even I would have gone, the fuck was that dream on about? <laughs> yeah, according to Wikipedia, Mordred is the uh, offspring of Arthur's accidental incest with Morgos. So, accidental. Hmm. Yeah, the king's estranged half-sister. Not really my tea, but... I mean, Arthurian <laughs> is myths are like a real mess, because... I mean, that's myth. Oh, myth. Well, yeah, but also, like I mean, you have, to look at the, you have to look at the marrying other practices I mean, of is that pretty, era. So, yeah, yeah no, yeah, they're like absolutely... Havoc is trying to date his nephew's mom. Um... <laughs> yeah. So, one thing that I have a continuous post um, Inferno is what Broadway was saying. There's so many layers, like very early Game of Thrones, like in the first seasons and the books, like there's so many layers because we don't really know Arthur's plan, or if even if it fits Arthur's plan, maybe it's someone else's. We don't know if the, if Jasper's is in league with the Furies or just like sort of a soft divorce or something. We don't know what Saturnine is playing at. We don't know what Jamie Braddock is playing at. We don't know what Doom's playing at, like with Morgan's castle. And there's so many layers, and they can connect in so many ways. Uh, and I'm really hoping that Excalibur doesn't get relaunched. I mean, because, I mean, yeah. it, everything I think at December feels like, oh, issue 25, we'll wrap it up and then mm. like relaunch. But Excalibur feels like it's just getting started, which feels weird for a 23 issue series. Right. But it dragged its feet a lot in the beginning before Ten of Swords, I think. Mm. And now yeah, that it's, it's, it's a the, slower. The, now that it's like big, really yeah. picking up the pace, I hope it doesn't stop. Yeah. And I, really yeah, I, don't, think, I don't think it makes sense for everything to restart because like we just restarted X, right? So at least X yeah, X-Men's not gonna get restarted. That, that one's pretty X-Men, clear. They're not gonna restart X Men again. That wouldn't make any damn sense. Excalibur, eh, I mean, you know, I, I'm kind of on the fence with it because, like, on the one hand, I'm advocating for give me a hundred issues of something, anything, please, God. Like, I wanted a hundred issues of X Factor, I wanted a hundred issues of Pellians. I'm getting neither of those. So, yeah, give me a hundred issues of Excalibur. On the other hand, I've kind of come to terms with like, this is the world we live in, everything gets freaking canceled everything is going to be limited everything ends and if we're restarting everything yeah like we could do another excalibur number one but i i agree that it feels like tinny's just getting started which is kind of a crazy thing to say after 25 issues because there's a lot a lot has been done with those 25 issues just the fact that we've got betsy and conan are now truly separate characters is you know a miracle unto itself like and they truly are like they totally have their own their own vibes going their own stories and and i think that's great a lot of cool stuff has happened this time 
title, but I think, yeah, there's, there's so much, so many more stories that can be told. Like I, I'd be down for Excalibur to run to hundred all day long. Yeah. And I'm like a long-term manga reader. Like I've been reading one piece for over a decade. And so like, I'm very comfortable with the idea that stories last 1000 chapters. It is interesting to feel like it's, it's getting to a climax, but then there's other things that like, and maybe, you know, other members of the X office will pick up, pick up on them. But like the malice of it all, I want to see like how Betsy forms a relationship with her and maybe like mentors her since like, you know, she has a kind of psychic e power. But I also feel like possibly instead of Excalibur like starting over at one or just going to like Excalibur 26, it could also be that like the title changes, like maybe it becomes like a Captain Britain book. Maybe it becomes like some sort of like legacy X-Men title where like maybe the focus and the cast and the focus shift a little bit in the fallout of Inferno. Uh, again, like Beth seeing the quiet council and what looks to be moira in a precognitive dream sounds like it's going to involve them and also i feel like the quiet council has not been managing the other world of it all very well they just sort of let apocalypse do that and then not ask any more questions and never follow up on whether saturnine can help them resurrect mutants in other world and also betsy's stuff got her kind of canceled in the uk and that broke the treaty and Jamie, who's a madman, love him, but he's a madman, is just running a kingdom. And nobody seems to be like, hey, how is that going? Like, I feel like when you have a vassal state as like an empire, you're supposed to like check in on them. Like, who's governing? Like, what are your what's your viceroy up to? But like, they're just like, go ahead, Jamie. And hey, we need you to like do stuff on the moon. But when you're done, like, go play very strange yeah that's that is a really uh, these are all good points and like you would expect magneto and xavier to be the ones that are kind of heading up that effort or maybe deputizing other people from the council but like yeah then none of that has happened you're you're dead right i mean i think there's a lot more to moira and other world that i don't know if we're gonna see anymore i, I think we're gonna get it played either. a part in house and powers mm. and obviously it was a big part of her plan to involve other world in ten of swords mm. so because they maybe, do bring the horsemen back in i mean they have to nine so like yeah she's at some level familiar with it and at some level familiar with the arako okara of it all they have to at least be somewhat aware of that but it Again, like with a lot of things from clones to uh, whatever, they're just like letting it ride. And I'm just not sure if that's sustainable. Uh, no, I, I see it collapsing soon after Inferno. Because you know Inferno well, is just going to... December. Yeah, you know, right I'm, I'm not sure, Broadway, if you meant sustainable, like in the storytelling sense or also like in a sales-wise sense. No, I meant like in like a like, political sense, like like. Internally okay. sustained, like they can't. Like Betsy died during Ten of Swords. Like that is a big deal. Like Doug got married off to some woman. Apocalypse almost died multiple times, and Betsy fully got shattered as part of some plot like that. Mm -hmm. And I felt like they were kind of like, ah, uh, yikes. Yeah, but like, yeah. yeah, you're right. They really have not addressed some of these big events. I feel like all we've seen from the Quiet Council is literally just making decisions that protect Krakoa. 
So the like any involvement with Otherworld, it's like, no, let's just block that gate. Let's just block access. Let's, let's remove the possibility of anyone coming through from that site. And that's it. That's been their total stance. You're right. Like there's been no oversight, they, no involvement. They let they let people do whatever until it became an issue for Krakoa. And then they were like, no, we're going to we're going to stop this. But obviously, Krakoa itself had other plans. I don't think that they're doing things for the sake of Krakoa. I think they're doing stuff for the sake of their own interests. The Quiet Council is mostly made up of relatively cishet white men. And the two biggest dogs on that council were Magneto and Charles and we've seen both of them are, are greedy 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 bastards when it comes to what they want and what they will do to get what they want like we can't pretend that they are without blame <laughs> so I, I don't think they've ever really done something to truly protect Krakoa I think they have done things to protect what their interest is I don't think they've thought much beyond that because who's just gonna let the, the Russians do as they please like and they're not addressing the fact that they are amassing weapons and and armaments that could literally shut everybody's shit down on that island. You don't let that just sit there and fester because the bigger that stockpile becomes, the more at danger Krakoa actually becomes and getting I mean, I think being able to like, geolocate it that hard <laughs> they're doing like the best that they can i mean i don't i don't think you know you can we're a nation now like we're we're a mutant state like we can't just attack they're worried about Russia. a corporation and some diamonds like they are not doing the best that they can yeah I think they're following what they think is their vision, but I think one of the central problems of the Quiet Council is like because it isn't as representative as we might want it to be, and also it's made up of people who don't often work together, they have no clear like vision for Krakoa. And so everybody's operating on like, what do I want to get out of this? Like Sinister's like, I'm trying to make an Omega level Sinister, right? <laughs> like Emma Frost is trying to get rich and, prote and like protect kids and stuff like that. Xavier's trying to do what Moira tells him to. And I feel like at a certain point, they're gonna have to be like, hey, like we as a people have to have like, like a bit more uh like not like you know i'm not sitting here like central planning like communist party of krakoa but like vision of what they're doing and what they should and should not allow to get in their way the egos and uh, the puppeteering by moira and others is like distracting them from that and I feel like people like Betsy get lost in the cracks. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot is going to be addressed in Inferno. I, I find it really difficult to separate Krakoa from Charles and Eric and even Moira. Like so, when when I say that that's that's all they care they care about protecting, like the or the at least the decisions that we've seen them made, like it's it's still their thing. Like uh, yeah, it's a nation. Other people live there, but like when it comes down to it, like it's it's that trio really making decisions, manipulating things, orchestrating things. So they, I would definitely agree that they have not made the best choices, and definitely there are a lot of selfish choices. I mean, like, for instance, like, as far as the whole Russia aspect, I mean, they put Beast in charge of that, basically. And we know how shady that motherfucker is these days. So like, and he, <laughs> I, I don't expect that Beast is giving them, you know, regular reports. He's just like, oh, if this is my thing. I'm going to take care of it. I'm not going to worry about telling anybody else. I don't need to report to anybody else. I get to make those decisions. So like, already, that's a yeah, terrible decision yeah. Don't, don't worry about my war crimes. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> but like they're not they're I mean we've seen don't, we've don't mind seen, those. <laughs> I mean it's no big thing, right? War crime. <laughs> Just a little bit of war crimes here and there, you know. <laughs> Without being involved. I mean, look at, you know, look at the New Mutants book, right? We have kids just running around doing nothing. And their response is like, oh, well, why don't you do something about it? Like, they're, obviously, they're making really, really bad decisions. Or actually, they're hardly even making decisions by that by that point. But really, like, they are after their own self-interest, which means they're, you know, making decisions based off of their Kirkoa. Yeah, but are they underhandedly controlling a bunch of things? Yeah, I'm sure. Like, is Onslaught afoot? Yes, maybe. Who knows? Like, there's insidious things going on but I think it's I think Charles and Eric specifically are trying to at least portray that they're being hands-off, even though, you know, I've, I've said before, like, I wouldn't be surprised if Charles is, you know, orchestrating every vote that goes into the quiet soul. Like That's you know, like a grocery telling you you have a pound of beef when he's got his thumb on the scale. Come on. But I think that's Arturo's point, is that, like, they're, like, <laughs> they're doing the facade of, like, letting people, oh. you know, this is, like, super liberatory and everybody, like, do what makes you happy, when, like, obviously they they have an agenda i mean like i i agree exactly with arturo it, what he's saying is what i'm just saying is when when people are are listening and hearing what what they are saying i'm just like bitch you're the butcher with your thumb on the scale we know that that you're not you're here for your interest and you're 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 not given the full truth of the matter because just well yeah i mean um, we're talking about yeah. xavier like yeah like, fuckery, <laughs> true, true like fuckery is is part of like the the, the admission price. It's DNA. That's his DNA. I, yeah. I think we also have to kind of operate on the assumption, which I know what assumptions makes out of people, but that Charles and Eric don't actually have a full story, and only Moira does. Right. So in theory, Charles and Eric are acting out like in the interest of the preservation mutant kind, not necessarily their um, how do you call it like self determinism. Like they're not think, looking for actualization, but survival. Right. But I think they want to be the hero of. The oh yeah, absolutely. They they yeah. want their own take. That's why they yeah. snitched on sinister. Like they they so went to hard. sinister. So but I think we have to give them a little like the slightest millimeter of or uh, inch for you guys of track that they're not operating on the full assumption even though they're they have been brutal assholes to destiny and more and mystique and others but yeah yeah no they what, some, what, of the, some of the just speculating so, some of their actions have been completely indefensible but you know i i will still i still believe in krakoa so warts and all cracks in the firmament you know i want to i want to hold it together with with hope and chicken wire Dante mentioned, you know, they let the like kids run around. They're kind of like, ah, do what you want. What is interesting is that Excalibur is a story that is based off of Apocalypse running around and they were like, do what you want. And then there were consequences for that. And they were like, don't do that again. Um, which is an interesting dynamic that it's like, ah, the kids can like bully each other, but like, God forbid you like open up portals and stuff. Now we have a problem. And that tension between like authority and sort of freewheeling Krakoan lifestyle is interesting when you have people like Apocalypse who are plotters and schemers. So that's I all. miss Apocalypse so much. Me too. I miss like, Daddy. I miss Daddy him a. so much. I, I know that like he's going to like appear in like the upcoming Dark Hole book, I think, which says like peak uh, Dark Age, I think. Dark Age. No, but Dark Ages is, is uh, it's like an alternate universe. Yeah. Okay, okay. 
cool. That but Daddy right. will be there. Good, good, good. That's that's nice to I hear. That's like the... best of both worlds. Like I would love to see some apocalypse, but I am not interested in in getting our apocalypse back just yet because it was such a Agreed. huge sacrifice and such a huge moment that like let that shit breathe. Like when apocalypse comes back, make it make it like a big event. Make it like ushering in a new age of apocalypse type shit. Like I don't we don't we don't need to we don't need to visit him. He doesn't need to he doesn't need to come and end up. Uh, I hope that if, if Hickman comes back, that's his play, like bringing back Apocalypse. No, but, no. Leave uh, Apocalypse out there. Give me Mama no, Genesis. I like need for, Mama uh, Genesis, okay? Yeah, but Hickman's, Hickman made up Genesis. I think. Yeah, yeah no, I know. They're, they're, and they're and I can get behind Genesis. I, I, love, I love Apocalypse, but he's Four been around here. the block several times. I want the story from Genesis. Poor I really, Richter, really do. Right? Speaking of poor Richter, you know who would be a great <laughs> addition for this little D&D party? Shatterstar. Shatterstar. God yeah. Please, please give me some Shatterstar. I'm starving. Um, yeah, I would love a uh, Apocalypse Genesis like solo title where I could just watch them be like fun and married and hot and like have a harem. And, right? and that would make me really happy. <laughs> Hey everybody, Nico here again. Now in this next segment, Defenders has been one of the most incredible debuts for 2021. And we go absolutely crazy on this title, whether it's the magic, the big science, the appearance of Galactus's mom, or the incredible number of Better Off Ted references we make. This segment was so much fun to record and we hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out over on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. Now that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Hi, I'm Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And hello, I'm Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me on uh, Twitter, Instagram, yeah, just kind of all over the place, Come talk to me. Hey, it's air quote Nathan. You can find me <laughs> at air quote Desler AOA on Twitter and Instagram. And there are a lot of air quotes in this issue. So many air quotes. Also, so I just many. I have to I have to say it, Nathan. I love that you come in like you're always on a megaphone. <laughs> like <laughs> it doesn't matter the segment, it doesn't matter the book, it doesn't matter what you're introducing. You could be like, hey everybody, I'm Nathan, and this is Tears in Heaven by Eric Clapton. And it would still be the same level of severity. And you know what? I feel like any book where we have to discuss on Omnimax, I feel like that is quite definitely what it requires. That, of course, means we're here to discuss Defenders number two. And for those playing at home, that's Defenders volume six, number two. The creative team on this bad boy is going to be Al Ewing on some brilliant words with Javier Rodriguez killing it over on pencils and inks. Inks also feature help from Alvaro Lopez. Now, the colorist is going to be Javier Rodriguez, which I always think it's really interesting when somebody pencils and colors, but doesn't do all of the inks involved. That's always a really impressive step in ability to step out of your own art. Love that. Now, the letters are brilliantly done by Joe Caramanga, who must have the most incredible style guide open when he works on this book. 
Now, <laughs> I am all sorts of gay bones for this book, and we have a pretty classic core team of defenders in ideological concept, though I probably would not call these guys all classic defenders. We have Silver Surfer, Red Harpy, Cloud, Doctor Strange, and Masked Raider. I want to start this off with, which defender has you the most raptured as you're reading this? Which defender can you not stop, you know, soaking up? For me, it's Masked Raider. That guy is a, a big soft spot for me in terms of my fandom, and I love him. Who for you guys has your attention from this team up of defenders? Betty Banner, like, because, like, she's, oh my god, so amazing is the Harpy, and obviously Al Ewing wrote The Immortal Hulk, so Al Ewing has that voice down, and just to see her carried over from that title in that same personality is to die for, yes. Yeah, I'm really enjoying reading Harpy's appearances in this. I love the re- the repeated insistence on being called Harpy. Like, you know, all, all Hulks insist on being called their Hulk form. And I like that Betty is no, is no exception to that. Also, Silver Surfer, especially the exploration we get into his feelings uh, in this issue. Yeah, I was honestly all about Silver Surfer because he seemed, he seemed as deep and as introspective as he usually is. But this time, instead of, you know, talking about others, he was really looking into himself. And it was a it was really great to see that honestly all these characters were here and all of them are kind of in that moment where they're they're having that I have to sit down I have to think I have to think about you know what's going on with me and the introspection of it all is really kind of lovely. Now one of the things that I think is a hallmark of a defender's title is that the defenders have to be focused on a bigger picture here. And that introspection, like you were saying, Raven, is a huge element of what makes a defender's title a defender's book. Defenders don't come together because it's a weird Thursday and everybody is out of bear claws. (laughs) Oh, I want to read that. No, I would not want to read a world where they were out of bear claws. You demented son of a bitch. Why would you do that to anyone? Hulk smash. Hulk smash no fucking bear claws what kind of dunkin donuts is this so pam poovy would definitely help out on that one too bear claws right so now as we slowly transition into isis i (laughs) i want to know one of the things about this title that made the stakes feel so powerful made the stakes feel so epic was that it didn't feel like it was stakes we necessarily understood i don't know how many people are hyper familiar with Omnimax and the idea of Galactus's mom, but I would love to know how do you guys feel about this transcendence of expectation? The whole thing is built on the functionality of this is the eighth universe, and there were universes before this. How does that change the stakes for you, that it's not New York is in danger on a Wednesday? I'm excited to see uh, other cosmoses. I see, I see in the next issue we're going to be jumping to the fifth cosmos. Excited to see what's up with there. I'm not as familiar with Al Ewing's new Avengers or Ultimates work as a lot of people. I've got some trades that I am going to read up on pretty soon. It looks very exciting and I can see that there's going to be a lot from that being pulled back in this. I was really excited. We kind of have over the years learned the backstory of Galen and Galactus. It was really nice to see it actually in time and perspective to get to meet his mom a little bit 
to, you know, air quote, find out what's going on and then kind of have Silt Nornrad so linked with the direction, like putting those, causing the paradox that created his own existence, right? So he kind of put maybe the thought process in Baby Galen's mind that sort of led him in the direction instead of the way Omnimax went where he was full of rage and hate. So Silver Surfer could not stop setting up self-fulfilling time prophecies. It's like his whole job these days. <laughs> I like the callbacks to Silver Surfer Black, and I like the direct parallels in the storyline here. And, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes this book feel so brave. As opposed to shying away from big ideas, you know, one of the things I think we see a lot is, oh, that character needs a bit of a rest because that character appeared so much recently. But Silver Surfer, like you said, is just bouncing right back from getting, I'm going to go with denullified, <laughs> I guess, into a whole new mystery. Now, something that's really interesting is this book feels as though it's perhaps a little late. Now, I don't mean like like, uh, no one's interested, it's late, but it feels perhaps delayed as a lot of this book seems to spin out of the pages of Marvel 1000. Now, Marvel 1000 also has a few other titles that are still running its gambit, as Marvel 1000 was the initial reintroduction of Korvac into the Marvel Universe, and we now see that running around the pages of Iron Man. So I feel like this team of Defenders is poised to be such a big deal, but it's almost as if it was waiting for all of the pieces to come together. Together. By having it set in this alternate universe where we're traveling through bigger and more beautiful cosmos, and I can't wait to talk about the art for like my entire life, but I was personally fascinated by the idea that we are playing at something very big picture, that this through Masked Raider ties back into Marvel 1000. We have the upcoming Death of Doctor Strange, just as this is coming out. How do you guys feel about the potentiality of this book? as sort of a, a fertility ground for other stories. Marvel's been doing that a lot in the last few years, in specific with Javier Rodriguez, with things like the history of the Marvel Universe. How do you guys feel about using this as a tentpole for a slate of publishing? Well, I think, I think, it's, I think it works. seems likely that something like that is going to happen with what we have going on between the Darkhold, the death of Doctor Strange, and the upcoming Timeless event. You know, I think a strength of valuing in everything I've ever read by him is that he will look at every other creator who's ever worked on a character and pull little bits and pieces from them and make them work in a way that improves and enhances my understanding of the psyche of the character involved. And like I mentioned, him pulling from Silver Surfer Black for a, a not only the plot, but also the characterization of Surfer in this particular issue is is really cool and indicative of that kind of thing. And I think that lends itself to these these branching offs. Like, I definitely thought that the best defense was going to be kind of what this book is becoming. And I'm kind of wondering if it's kind of like a second run for that that launch off. I just restarted my Immortal Hulk reread because I just finished another reread. And so Best Defense is like Very where it's early. positioned. It's yeah. like right coming up and I'm so excited to get to rereading <laughs> it. It's just such a good time. Yeah, it's good. It felt like that was going to launch a slate of Defenders related things to me at the time. And then the pandemic struck and is still striking. So yeah. Damn you, know. Panorama. <laughs> it, does, it does feel to me like another jumpstart. 
you know? Hmm. Yeah. To, to me, it actually, it felt well-timed. We'll see if it plays out the way I think it's going to play out. But with all of the, can I say, magical fuckery uh, Stephen Strange has been doing lately. Hold on, we, we're mean, actually getting, we're getting a report. It is, yes, the 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 team officially approves. It is magic fuckery. Yes, point <laughs> Raven. It is absolutely magic fuckery. Point Raven. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, it is magical fuckery because between Al Ewing and Scotty Young's books, he's been, he's been pulling a lot of big strings and hoping that it doesn't, you know, come to a price, especially with Scotty Young's book, Strange Academy. Like, if you haven't read the book, please go read it. He's been doing stuff there that is quickly racking up a bill, as it were. So I think this is yeah. a great way to kind of like lead into okay fine you know the universe has come calling whichever universe it is and you know bam here you go there's your bill pay it in full yeah it's funny i just between the last issue we discussed of this series and this one i reread everything dr strange from 2015 to now so since the establishment of the eighth cosmos and i gotta say that's the one and only thing that ever gets talked about in dr strange comics is how there is a price and dr strange just still has not paid it all yet and just keeps mm. racking up greater and greater debts so i think yeah I, i'm hoping the death of dr strange is just kind of an attempt to restart that again because man that guy's got crazy debt right <laughs> just did a reread of Doctor Strange and the Sorcerer Supreme because I am criminally obsessed with Kushala. Yeah, I love that series. That was actually a standout for me, I think. The yeah. Oh, Rodriguez art and the, it, it, it's incredible. I, yeah. Raven, I would definitely recommend yeah. that for you as well. It's also all on Marvel Unlimited, so you'd be able to read it all. And it's and your own it's adventure. A super excellent series. I very much recommend. Mm, I think I'll check that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's absolutely so gorgeous. excellent. Really good Stephen yeah. Strange writing. It is. I love this book because we keep talking about it. it's so magic it's so magic like it, we sound like abby Kadabi. it's so magic <laughs> right but the thing that this book is also is it is big science 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 right the echo gets fair and so <laughs> i need to point out that one of the things that i love about al ewing's deftness one of the things i love about his charm of character is he loves to blur how big he makes things with the mundanity of how small things are. So all of the big science that's wrapped up in all of the big magic is, as Nathan kicked this all off, wrapped up in this sort of humorous mundanity of a human being that can't figure out how to fucking communicate, quote unquote. <laughs> can't and feel emotion. I find myself charmed by the humor of this. Now, I'm not by any means demeaning anyone's work anywhere along the line, but I feel like with a few small exceptions the x books don't have this kind of levity and i'm gonna call hellions out i don't think hellions has this kind of lightness either hellions has humor but it's not a warm humor one time uh, i was asked to explain why i love x-force ecstatics but i don't usually love the funny comic and it's because x-force ecstatics makes no apologies for its acidity it doesn't want to apologize for its acidity and it is intentionally an acrid, ugly piece of art that you are forced to confront, right? Now, I love that so much of Krakoa is about that that ugliness, that, that more sinification of our identity of superheroics as something more complex than a good versus evil narrative. I love that. 
but it sometimes means that we lose joy. The Silver Surfer here proved joy. One of the things that this book seeks to do is to create a boundary on moral quandary, a place that we kind of limit ourselves as a, a kind of like a, this is the limitation on what's super heroics. And I was truly charmed by Silver Surfer not giving us that, okay, so a reference was made a couple of weeks ago to Phil and Lem, and I just need to jump <laughs> in with one of the greatest Phil and Lem jokes ever is, would you kill the baby Hitler? I love your moral questions, right? <laughs> and like, that, that was the Silver Surfer here. The Silver Surfer and the Masked Raider were Phil and Lem, and it was very, would you kill the baby Hitler? Meanwhile, inexplicably, they've accidentally dosed someone, and they found a new baby, and they've named it Ted. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's on fire now. Oh my god! The plate exploding in yes! flames remains uh, one of the funniest bits of. And Jabberwocky is the funniest. <laughs> of all time. So, especially when you hear coming in 2013 and you just want to die. So, <laughs> casual Fribs Day is still on my calendar. So, I I want to know how do you guys feel about the levity, the balance of humor in a book that very well should be about nihilistic darkness? I mean, like you guys keep saying, this eighth cosmos is at a great cost to strange, yet we revel in the humor of this title. How do you guys feel about that inherent dichotomy? Honestly, it, it hit me right in the feelings, much like Veronica. So I felt things like drunk <laughs> and horny. Now finish him with the phone. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> are you reading The Art of War? Well, your enemies are. <laughs> That's honestly what I felt reading this book, though. It's like I had emotions, but not all of them were like, oh my God, the world is going to end. Some of them were just, <laughs> oh my God, this is really funny. <laughs> I love that they did use kind of it, it. Oh God. It reminded me of kind of the slightly older comics, like in the, I want to say like 50s and 60s, where you'd get that really kind of corny feel to it. I felt it in this book in a good way. And I, I think it, it gave you the levity that you would need because there's a lot of very serious shit that goes on and there's a lot of very serious titles this felt like that little bit of levity that you need otherwise you'd just kind of be crushed under all of the you know like here's a bunch of magic speak and here's some existential dread and hey would you like a dose of just questioning everything of time and space okay now we're gonna make you laugh a little bit or else you're just gonna <laughs> for raven's point i really enjoy the like silver age superhero cartoonery of Taya, Galactus's mom. Yes. <laughs> just a delight. Just a delight to have on Paige. I love what she's hitting on Stephen Strange. I love what he's uh, floating <laughs> at. I love Silver Surfer's complete mortification at his friend's behavior with his boss's mom. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. It's super fun. I love reading this kind of L.U. and comic. I loved reading the Guardians of the Galaxy annual with Hercules. It had the, it had a similar tone to this, just the zany cartoon mishaps of these people. And I'm very excited that Taya looks like she is going to be a part of this new Defenders going forward for the rest of this journey, replacing Silver Surfer. Obviously, right? Like, I'm a big camp guy. Like, 
like this has that big camp 70s feel but it's modernized i i love everything about it i love the herald of the devourer who is like basically what he's the red surfer basically and he's got like sunglasses on his head it's amazing yeah i love how even clouds like i can feel it from here he has the power cosmic it's just like everything about it is that there is a level kind of like we were saying raving there's a little level of that silver age corniness Mm -hmm. i know the art is an intentional design in the colors that they use to throw back to the to older printing styles but still even in that it doesn't feel you don't have all the negative parts of the older silver age silver age stories and you do have more character development so even though it's a nice throwback it's still modern in a storytelling element so i'm like here for it and love it that's a fun character quirk that i think her eyes are always closed i'm like yeah, i was that, i was that, just that's... reading back over that and going this, I, are her eyes closed or are they just like white she's kind of like a sexy muppet like that <laughs> <laughs> so she's from happy time burner you know and i i fucking really love the ridiculous conversation we're having about galactus's mom right now because first of all the world that we live in that we can discuss having a conversation about galactus's mom like this is everything to me it's a great phrase yeah right galactus she's got it going on she She really does (laughs) one of the things that makes this book so magical for me uh, two issues in having a great time is the art and i think there's something to be said about kind of remake and retelling culture and this is something that I feel like Nathan will probably be able to speak a lot better than I can to. And, you know, so I'll definitely want to yield the floor to him. But I am not a big fan of remake culture. I'm a big fan of a good remake for the sake of a good remake. I don't think it needs to be a part of a wave of a crafted narrative of remakes, though there is something to be said for similar art in similar times yielding strong results, right? Mm-hmm. But The Defenders isn't a book you can ever truly remake every run of defenders is very one of a kind but just like you guys said you know it's kind of fun to go back to these classic ideas and tell them without all of the horrifying racist sexist and homophobic (laughs) tropes and stereotypes and I think with comic books, you're able to go back in and match classic art styles and yet shed those elements. One of the things that I've loved is that while this feels very Defenders, it has things in it that don't feel Defenders. And something that Defenders has always felt like is kind of sitcommy. But this feels like a very right now sitcom. This is very Defenders as the good place. And I was wondering oh. how everybody feels about this idea of... Of the defenders can't be imitated it can only be reformed to its modern audience's purpose and if anybody else felt like there was definitely a, a modernist vibe to the approach of the defenders here in ewing's very throwbacky book so you're right the classic defenders especially before you get into new defenders where it became a totally different very odd team book it kept some of the odd elements of the the classic defenders but classic defenders is when when you think about it i when i think about defenders i think about the odd scenes where we have where 
Hulk would make some really corny joke to Hellcat and like she would be like he'd be like Hulk hungry let's go eat somewhere and she'd be like come on pal let's go and you know like that's like classic Defenders corny they would have the they had a lot of the element where they were the non-team that was their thing the, the members were always falling apart at the seams so to have a really consistent team wouldn't work so this this goes with the this goes with the big themes of Defenders it keeps it modern and it keeps it a bigger stake than what defenders got to in its middle part that was very campy hokey i love the hell out of it but maybe i could see why new defenders would have sold well and better than regular defenders the reason i like the defenders as the kind of the non-team especially in this book is they were the characters that you need not just a stable group of you know characters that you just kind of make fit wherever you go so like again they were they were all supposedly random pulls from where the cosmic forces needed people to be and so that's what it feels like that they're needed and not just like oh yeah we're just gonna try and fit this power structure in here somewhere and it'll do which is sort of like the opposite of the classic avengers where the classic (laughs) avengers were like uh Y'all want to hang out and fight Loki? Right? <laughs> I'm lost. Pew, pew. I have changed my costume all the time. That's all they let her do early days. Sorry. Oh, it, yeah. No, it really was. And, you know, it's so funny to me because I feel like because the Defenders is a non-team, like you just said, Nathan, it kind of is very moldable to whatever it's meant to be, which is how we wound up with the secret defenders being so 90s in the 90s, looking all sorts of midnight suns, right? Which was never the right fit for the book. And it's just sort of such a a uniquely imprintable idea. Does You know, when I think about other versions of the defenders, there was the four-issue miniseries by Dematius that was meant to be funny. And it involved Hulk having sex with Satana and it causing him to, through the process of Afterglow, stop being so angry. And then she had no purpose for Puny Banner. So uh, she legitimately kicked him out of bed afterward for going limp. And it was... (laughs) It's just one of those books, man. Wow. That's what I love about Defenders. I love the bigness of it. And the bigness of Defenders was never bigger than under Javier Rodriguez's art. I could talk about the colors on this book forever. The color story on this book is emotionally effective. I don't know about anybody else, but I am moved into childhood by the density and the variance of color and line shape. Yeah, frankly awe-inspiring. From the massive flex when you see the fifth cosmos and it's just Omnimax, like, wow, blew me away on those colors. Now, Nathan, you're a guy who's read so much Defenders. How do you feel about this artistic interpretation? The Defenders, while the art on the Defenders has always been an important thing, I think back to those super dramatic Sienkiewicz covers, right? (sighs) Yes. While the art on the Defenders has always been important, I don't know that a writer has ever had a big enough concept story like this where they were able to take a step back and say, I'm going to let the artist do the heavy lifting. 
How do you feel about the reinterpretation of Defenders as an art title as opposed to a strictly a big ideas kind of writer's book? I don't know. I kind of feel like this title actually does more of more of a good balance of like a 50-50 like big ideas plus art title, which you're right. Defenders has never, never really been as much that. Yes, New Defenders had those beautiful covers, which were like to die for gorgeous. But everything about the art in this book does such a great job of conveying the tone of the story when you've got the outside scenes it, it's big it's cosmic you see you know the the bright colors the bold characters when you get inside of the buildings you get in when you get into her science fortress quote unquote you know it turns into a totally different color scheme that it's fits what you would think of a science fortress Gal baby galen's chamber looks very similar to like the tardis's like control room just in like color and like you know even it's even got concentric circles in it in places so i i think this book has allowed there to defenders to become more of a big idea art show along with the stellar storytelling so instead of being like overly balanced on one side or the other i think it's really done a great 50 50 job and raven i mean as a painter i know one of the things that is really different across different mediums specifically is the way color and line play a part in telling the story one of the things that i noticed very specifically is that Rodriguez seeks to vary line weight throughout his pencil work and uh, ink work in a way that creates different dimensions to the characters. We don't just see Taya have a larger body. We see the lines applied to her body be thicker to give her more dimension and more shape. I know as somebody who's always looking for comics to do better by varied body shape, how does that play out with you, seeing a penciler and an inker take the time to redefine the concept of shape not just the sizes that are applied i loved the artwork in this and i loved the color story that went with and i also really loved the fact that we didn't always get the same body shape because so often like stephen strange is like one of my least favorite characters <laughs> but also one of my favorite characters to hate but usually he's you know big broad shoulders tight waisted he looks like the uh, art professor that just works out a little bit of crossfit so you know that kind of going on but in this one they weren't afraid to make him so much smaller and softer shaped than you know this big wonderful smiling overly confident <laughs> just i loved taya to no ends because like she knew what she was doing she's just gonna do the thing oh you poor dear children come on we're going to evacuate you now come on it's like wow and i i loved not only the the line weight which really did help to harken back to like that 1960s uh feel i also loved the use of the colors that ran through here into the like into the different areas that you would go it really felt like it you know it changed and it transitioned and when you got into the fights those psychedelic colors that they used and the psychedelic kind of patterns and schemes that they used were so gorgeous and so wonderful and it really kind of told you the backstory of kind of reality and magic and science are all kind of getting crushed together and running wild and you don't know what to expect from it and I loved it it just oh it's such a gorgeous piece of work to really get into and I oh, could not stop reading 
Steve, I remember that one thing that you really connected with on this first issue was the symbology and the mysticism throughout. Now, I know a number of us on this panel have a strong relationship with mysticism and the occult, but I really remember thinking that, you know, you had really read into so many beautiful levels throughout the issue. Was there anything that had stuck out for you in the second issue as it related to the idea of the very potent magic thread here? I was happy that they stuck to the tarot theme. I like like the exploration of Silver Surfer in this issue through the lens of him being judgment reversed. The issue and the emotional storytelling is completely intelligible without any kind of background knowledge, to be honest. But I, I found that the exploration of his role as a literal herald of a world-devouring space god as the more literal aspect of like the Rider Pack tarot picture, but also his constant reflections and parallelism in his thoughts on the mirror nature of himself and his opponent during the fight, the other cosmically powered Carlos Ota. I appreciate the way that Al Ewing is taking these cards, not not necessarily being uh, constrained to telling, you know, like the major arcana stories or whatever, but using them as thematic resonators to focus the characters' personalities through and to shine a light sort of on what Al and what Javier want us to see about these characters specifically for this story. And I think it's I think it's working brilliantly. I love when the Silver Surfer talks about mirrors in general because he is one, you know? Dude spends all his time looking at absolutely nothing in the black fucking emptiness of space except for, you know, the mirror underneath his feet and the mirror that is his own skin. So, and he is as reflective as a puddle of liquid naquita. Yeah, it's it, it it's very fitting that Silver Surfer is always reflecting, both literally and metaphorically, and he spends almost this entire issue in his head uh, thinking about judgment and talking to the Macerator about whether he should want judgment at all, which is a nice callback to the fact that he's a, the reverse card. It's very interesting to me. It deeply resonates. I don't necessarily have like a, a tarot lesson to give on it. I really appreciate what Al is doing, and I'm very excited to see how the Harpy plays out with the High Priestess card in the next issue. I'm sorry, but if you don't have a tower read, then what? It, what then what is this Groupon for? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, you know, I actually really agree with you. I think one of the things that Ewing is doing probably the best for me, magically speaking, is his deft understanding of dual meaning symbology. I get so frustrated when I hear in anything magical, oh, that thing only has one meaning and it is doom for you. I just want to like throw myself into an incinerator because yeah, I just that's can't super frustrating do it. when you no, I'd rather throw them and I'm gonna die. Right. And like, I also think back to like now, okay, you know, fuck me on this, but like, I think back to the TV show Passions. And I remember it's like in the second or third episode that Tabitha is like, ah, yes, the three eyed owl card. The what? And it, and it was just, you know, some card that she had in whatever deck they gave her to use that episode. And they just described some sort of fucking bird on a card. Yeah. And yeah, that, you know. that, that can get really out of hand. Definitely. If if every time somebody drew the tower or death, something extremely bad happened to them, I would have 
very bad weekends every weekend. Yeah, there's going to be a frequency to certain cards appearing more often than others. And, uh, you know, like, you just like, oh, well, buddy, I'm real sorry. I'm real, real sorry. But the card came up. Now you die. Like, it would just be unfair. Uh, it's just not what I want. So something that makes, uh, and I'm I'm literally no expert, but something that makes I think a good reader is the ability to interpret for yourself rather than relying on meanings handed down in little card packs. And I think Al Ewing is himself adept at that, at least so far with this story. I think that he's going to find his own meanings in in what he's trying to talk about here with these. Honestly, I kind of love the fact that they use the tarot cards and that he's using the reverse and every single one of their cards came up in the reverse which i'm like oh this is gonna be a cosmic shit show like literally this is going to be a cosmic shit show i want to see it so bad (laughs) 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 and like i had to purposely sing it a little bit off key because i didn't want to pay for the rights (laughs) what rights i have no idea what that song is what what? No, that's 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 a song from the sixth cosmos. You wouldn't know it. <laughs> it does feel like a cosmic shit show is exactly what we're in store for. I I think it's it's funny you mentioned that they are all reversed, and I I usually think of reversals as like a, a blocking or a misdirection or a, a mischanneling of whatever energy, magical or spiritual, emotional that mm-hmm. you're working with, and we constantly get this story about Stephen Strange being unable to control the magic it has to flow it has to flow naturally outside of his control and then in this issue he literally tries to redirect and rechannel right. it for his own ends and i'm just i i think i think you're onto something there with all the cards being reversed mm-hmm. so yeah i'm i'm that actually pulled me in even further because i kept watching as he's okay another card another card do i dare another card and i'm like bitch you have gotten nothing but reversed cards so far <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's, uh, it's just upside down, right out of the pack. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he took it right out, he turned it upside down in his hand, and he started drawing cards. Oh, I, I even want to imagine that it's like a step dumber, even like he's like, oh no, I just drew the Ace of Wands. He puts it right back on top, pulls it again. <laughs> oh no, I just drew the Ace of Wands! Again. Puts it down on top of the deck. Like, what happened, Harpy? Draws the next card. It's the Ace! Like, I just keep imagining that that's what's going on for poor Strange right now. Oh my god. Well, I had to laugh because so many of them are major arcana. That is that is the one thing that I will kind of giggle at a little bit. is They were all major arcana. I'm just like... Well, I mean, it's pretty hard to make a $5 bill sound special. You know what I mean? And, like, I get that as a writer. Like, you know, everybody focuses on the Benjis because it's so, you know, no one's ever like, I would like my million dollars in crisp fives. What? No. Nico, there's absolutely no way anybody would ever be interested in the Minor Arcana, some random throwaway card. Like, I don't know, the Ten of Swords. <laughs> I would like Burn. to make a point that after last year, I'm not sure how many people will be interested. No, nope, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. The Ten of Swords, the Ace of Base, your very popular minor arcana. And I know that that is a, it's a huge thing. It's just sort of the way we, we kind of celebrate 
uh, celebrate magic is so interesting because like, you know, one of the things that has maintained is Doctor Strange. But, you know, magic isn't about being strange. It's about going strange places with yourself, perhaps. But magic isn't about being strange. And Marvel doesn't seek to make magic seem about being strange. It's about going deeper and somewhere more powerful. And I think one of the things that's so fucking great about this book is that this book isn't equating bigger and bigger with more and more power. It isn't like they're changing the stakes. Like, how do I, um, because I'm a big fan of this writer, so I mean this positively. They're not using Aaron logic. I knew you were going to say that. Well, because there's no other fucking way to say it. I mean, it's the best thing you've ever said. It's because it's accurate. They're not using Aaron logic here. This is shit's getting bigger because shit should get bigger, right? And at the same time, the characters are remaining true to who they are. This isn't Silver Surfer has been given 16 cosmic cubes and it's just like he's trying to quit cosmic smoking. So he's just smacked a cosmic cube up and down his arms. Yeah. And he's just cosmic cubing you. You know what I mean? He's like, should I kill baby Galactus? No, I'm going to teach him the little prince and we're going to have a good day. You mentioned that the stakes don't get higher, and I think that's right. I think the stakes get darker and weirder. It's very interesting that we went to a cosmos bathed in science, which I feel the need to point out is like the exact third time that we've done that or something similar to that in a Doctor Strange mm-hmm. comic since 2015 between the empirical and then that thing that Wade did that one time. It's really interesting to me all the time how Doctor Strange writers are always like, science, it's just this other thing, this weird separate magisteria, a thing that I tend to have issues with. But the next cosmos is one just bathed in seemingly dark magic. I don't really know much about Moradun, but I did some quick Googling and he seem- he seems like bad news. Yeah, yeah, you know, he doesn't seem like a good time at a beach house. I don't know. When I first saw him, no. I was like, this seems like a guy I could trust. <laughs> I like his, I like <laughs> his dog, though. I like his, like, is that a dog? Like, his little dog with, yeah. like, the, the wormy mouth? Ugh. Oh, my Maybe God. Maybe I, I spend too much time reading that in Arako, but, like, this guy is, like, kind of cute, huh? <laughs> oh. Yeah. Yeah, no, when Cthulhu and his lamprey hellhounds show up, I am noping the fuck out. <laughs> it's like, ooh, no. Nope, 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 nope. Lamprey teeth, nope. I'm famous for collecting plushes of xenomorphs oh. because I think yeah, we know your bad is decisions. the sweetest thing in the world. But and whenever anybody's like, why? I'm like, because it has a second mouth to extra kiss you with. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so I want to come back to Defenders for a moment because I have sort of a, a sort of weird last question that's a two-part last question that's meant to be answered in three states. No, it's just two questions. Number one. I'm like, yeah, this is part of the course. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This is if you're not confused by the question, I haven't spoken. So one of the things that the Defenders did for a zillion years was the Defenders sort of alternated with the new team du jour versus the Avengers. That was a classic thing for Marvel. It would be the Defenders versus the Avengers. And then you might kind of get like a Champions versus Avengers. But it's really like a team up, not really a versus. And then you would get Defenders versus the Avengers again. And then you got perhaps Guardians or an Infinity Watch kind of thing. That went on for years. We saw them try it again with the Thunderbolts and Agents of Atlas versus the Avengers. It sounds like it's just people versus the Avengers. Remember AVX? 
Apex. I don't, yeah. I don't yeah know. You know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, it just sort it's of sounds... Avengers fighting everybody. <laughs> Hold on, wait. Are we saying the Avengers act like cops? I'm just They checking. are. They're, 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 they're very punchy. Oh. Okay. They're extremely fighty. <laughs> okay. I, I feel like you've blown a hole in my question. I, I, I don't I'm going to power through anyway. I don't know if you're entitled to go. that, but you know. <laughs> So uh, now that Steve has invalidated all of my, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, so kidding. I'm kidding. I'm so kidding. <laughs> so I kind of feel like, in many ways, the Eternals are set to take the position that the Defenders have long held in the Marvel universe: the much too powerful fraternal order of beings that can give the Avengers a run for their money. And I think we're seeing that ramped up with Gillen. So Gillen has this thing where I'll love something and no one else will like it in the entire world and then Gillen touches it and everybody's like, oh yes, well I've been along I was there first, that's not a long adopter right, you know, and I feel like that's my relate, like so Avengers um, 1 million BC is like actually my favorite thing in the world <laughs> I'm so obsessed with it and the fact that they're going to meet the Eternals, I feel very much like the Eternals is something the Marvel offices want to put a lot of money behind, at least right now especially putting a writer like Gillen that's just, you know, it's, that's a kiss it's a chef's kiss right there. Right? A chef's kiss from a Tonbury. So. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my God. Thank you, you got me wanting Galactus' <laughs> mom to team up with Thor's mom right now. Like, that would be amazing. Sorry, I'm this so is... hot for that. <laughs> so, with the possibility that the Eternals are probably a little bit more likely to play the role that the Defenders have played in the past. What do you hope for the future of this Defenders group? I mean, it's impossible to imagine what Ewing is going to do with this title, but where would you hope a year from now to see this Defenders title? And the sort of secondary question is, who do you think the book could benefit from the inclusion of? Myself, I hope that this book remains a miniseries. I'd love to get maybe 10 issues every 18 months. I don't want to see them work this creative team too hard. But I do know that with a book this big and full of this much potential, I think the more mysterious your characters, perhaps the more you can do. And I think Kushala, a master of magic, somebody who is getting their own series, she's poised to blow up in a big way this year, especially if Doctor Strange is going to do the noble thing and get the fuck out of my comics. I feel like Kushala is a great person to step in and multiverse that shit up. So how do you guys feel about this title where you see it a year from now and who you think could improve the quality of the book? Well, I think the Eternals should fight the Avengers. (laughs) (laughs) I think that they have earned their chance. It would literally just take one word. (laughs) I don't know what the plans are, but it doesn't feel like a a long-running, ongoing to me. It feels like a a tight mini. I would love in a year's time to see whatever the end roster of this group looks like by the end because of, you know, shifting people out of Doctor Strange's magic and back to their own probably. I expect to be a thing every issue maybe while they pick up a different person and go on if if Taya is any example to go by. I kind of hope that's what happens because that would be exciting and interesting to me. But I would like to see like this revolving group of defenders be maybe like part of the magic click that we've seen for a few years now with, you know, Doc Strange hangs out with Wanda and Jericho and magic all the time and they talk shit at their bars. It'd be nice to see this Defenders team be like the group that appears in the Darkhold book to handle whatever needs to be handled. You know, just 
there's a lot that could be done with like a sort of cosmically empowered and cosmically traveling group of defenders, especially with Timeless coming up so soon. Now I'm imagining, I don't know how I got there from what you said, but all I can imagine is the cast of Cheers as this group of defenders. And instead of Norm, everyone goes, Norin! (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Wait, is is Harpy Carla though? Like, maybe? (laughs) Oh my God, she just hangs out behind the bar and she's just like, I hate Stephen Strange! (laughs) No one cares that you're a washed up professional surgeon. Now you work at a bar and you clean the glasses just like every one of us schmoes. No, no, no. You know Stephen Strange would be Dan, but Cloud would definitely be Woody Harrelson's character who I'm suddenly blanking on. Oh, what is his name? Uh, I almost said Nate Dog, and I feel like that can't be right. <laughs> no. And Mass Raider can be Clive. <laughs> I get to. I, I'm Fraser, though. That's 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 for sure. So, Raven, where where do you see the book a year from now, and what would you add to bring just a little bit more magic? I think the series should be a pretty tight mini series, as it were, because if the universe and time space magic is just constantly collapsing on itself and constantly in danger, you kind of get that. Okay, you, it, we're still in danger. We're always in danger. There's, I, I don't know where you're gonna go with this. But if they give it, give us like tight mini series where we can go, ooh, event, and chew that over and digest that, and then like take a year off and then give us another one that be perfect because that gives you time to actually Mm. you know sit and digest Mm -hmm. and and really want it and it gives them time to really flesh out a really good story instead of going we have to hammer everything just quick everybody throw everything at the wall and see what sticks because you know so yeah keep it to a mini series make us want it yeah yeah if we're getting yearly uh hellfire galas why not a yearly defenders mini that would be my biggest fear about living on earth 616 just the amount of alien invasion this week like this is like time is collapsing this week like oh my god there's like symbiotes all over the place and not like the dax ones but like um if the the everything is in danger and is gonna die like you said raven is very would be very taxing and to have this story carry out to this level as a as like a full run series wouldn't serve the story on it what i would love out of this mini series that we're getting is probably my one ding of it so far is we pulled a character from extreme obscurity cloud so we pulled them from new defenders was the last time we saw them i mean we saw once or twice in between and i do have a little bit of a problem with the fact that we've only seen cloud so far take their female form and they haven't used their male form at all i I would love to see that explored some to talk about their their nature as a sentient nebula and not to not be gender and they they don't care what gender they are because they don't have one so i'd love to see that explored but what i would love for the end of this series is you know what almost like to see galactus's mom in current universe just go and like mom galactus (laughs) i would also like to see it Yeah, like she'd be like, Galen, why are you air quote eating these planets? <laughs> Do you think no? Galen gets Do I want to see naughty her with step. Do I want to see her with Nanny or do I not want to see her with Nanny? <laughs> I think I do. Like, that would be awesome, but like I don't see how that story would fit. But oh my god, would, would that be epic? Would like, Nanny try to kill her and orphan Galactus, or would they be friends? I don't. Nan- I think Nanny would, would try friends. to make Galactus a baby Galactus. Oh god. 
Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now in this next segment, Shang-Chi's very different kind of family faces off against the Fantastic Four. And what happens is a study in the ever-changing landscape of the Marvel Universe. Now, Shang-Chi made his debut in the MCU before the Fantastic Four did. And that's sort of something that we never could have imagined 10 years ago. And the ways in which the Marvel Universe continues to unfold as a rich tapestry across multimedia is just incredible. Guys, we love making this show for you twice a week every week and we hope you guys enjoy until next time guys i'm nico and you guys can find me at nico action that's n-i-c-o-a-c-t-i-o-n keep those mutant lights lit those krakoan gateways open and we'll see ya Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. Now that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, it's Nathan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Dazzler AOA. That's like Dazzler in the Age of Apocalypse. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah. That's P-E-A-K. And we hope you survive this experience just like Shang-Chi's mom did, because she's still alive. And she made a bond with some bug thingies. We're here to talk about the most recent issue of Shang-Chi, which in and of itself kind of requires a bit of a discussion to set up for our keen-eared listeners who may be like, you know, things about this felt a bit like Shang-Chi the film, but not quite. We try to remain as, like, spoiler-free on the films as we can. So, while there may be some parallels between this issue and Shang-Chi the film, we're going to avoid those for the most part. And instead, we're going to focus on the core of this story. So, Shang-Chi has had a phenomenal calendar year based on the inevitable success of his film. Now, the film itself has been pushed around a little bit, which has meant that they've kind of restarted the character a few times. There was Shang-Chi 1 through 5 released in 2020, which was a successful miniseries that led to the ongoing that started this year. Now, between the miniseries and the ongoing by the same creative team, we've got The Legend of Shang-Chi number 1 by Alyssa Wong. Now, that came out when at one point the movie was supposed to come out and, you know, the titling is pretty similar there. Now, since then, we've also received a Shang-Chi one-shot in the pages of the Marvel Voices Legend Legacy special, which was an amazing story. Now, Kyle, while most of the team has had an opportunity to talk about that issue, I feel like you're one of our Shang-Chi correspondents who hasn't. How did you feel about the Marvel Voices Shang-Chi one-shot eight-page story? I really liked it. It really brought in the lessons that Shang-Chi learned from his friends. I liked that, especially now that he's kind of sort of going up against them it kind of is a nice balance to that. And you know, I feel like Shang-Chi really is about trying to create that balance and that duality. And that was something I feel we all commented on in What Is Versus What If, the Marvel Voices special story. And it's been such an interesting ride trying to cover all of this material. Like we mentioned, there was the five-issue miniseries. Of course, we're on the fourth issue of the ongoing, bringing us to nine. There was the aforementioned Alyssa Wong one-shot, bringing us to ten. We had the four-part Marvel Unlimited Shang-Chi 
Infinity Comics story. So we've covered an awful lot of this character in the last few months here on Nexus for Podcast. And that brings us to one of our very few appearances of the Fantastic Four here on this show in the pages of Shang-Chi number four. Now, this issue, as with the rest of the series, is by Jean Luen Yang and Dyke Ruan, with colors by Triona Farrell, letters by VCs Travis Lanham. And I thought this issue in many ways served as a strong jumping back in point and very much kind of a self-contained one shot. Now, before anything else, I want to ask you guys, how do you feel about the Fantastic Four right now? We're predominantly X-Men fans here on this show. So, you know, Franklin is a pretty hot topic for us still. How do you guys feel about the Fantastic Four and their place in the Marvel Universe as it currently sits? I haven't really been aware of what they've been up to since Empire? I'm kind of not really sure how to feel about them in this particular instance or in the Marvel Universe as a whole. I really get that, and I feel like it, a lot of it has to do with some of the more exquisite elements of the duality of being Marvel's first family and having a mutant child that the Richards like to play against. Nathan, you know, and I say this with absolutely the most love, but absolutely nobody could run an old Queenie summer camp the way you could, because when <laughs> I think old queens in camp, my friend, you are both the captain and Tennille. So this story really hits a lot of those magical notes. It's got elements of a classic Marvel team-up, but it's got all of the things that we love about a good Fantastic Four appearance. How do you feel about the Fantastic Four right now, and does that line up with this admittedly pretty critical appearance of them? So, I have actually been following the Fantastic Four comic. It's one of those titles that you pick up and you don't maybe read every month, you catch up. I do love the family, the idea of them. They're these larger-than-life camp characters. I really camp characters that go battle bugs in space, patrol around with the big giant orange rocky guy, the fire guy, and the other two in these really, really bright blue spandex. So they're like camp extreme. This appearance was probably like if I had to give the issue a ding, I didn't maybe love the characterization of the Fantastic Four. I thought that Reed Richards would have probably given Shang-Chi a chance to explain and try to get his what they thought they was going after their sister. I would have thought that Reed would have been a little bit more understanding Wait, and probably on. gone with him. So are you saying that before they got to battle, you think Reed would have stretched for time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just like Sue, they couldn't see the truth in front of them. Oh, I mean, you know, one of the things I love about Sue is she's never one to hide her feelings. She's so transparent. <laughs> Good thing Ben's got such a thick hide. Oh, my God. Speaking of regrettable puns, Jonah, talk to me about your relationship with the Fantastic Four. I know that they're a team that you've kind of openly said to me, you're just not that interested. As a matter of fact, when I recently mentioned the stunning Matt Fraction, Mike Alred run, you said, wait a minute, it's She-Hulk, Miss Thing, Scott Lang, Ant-Man, and Medusa? That shit I'd read. And, you know, I do think that would be a title very much up your alley. How do you feel about Fantastic Four in general? And what did this appearance do for you? The Fantastic Four, as I've come into this comic fandom, I have realized that I don't particularly care for the Fantastic Four. Not that they don't have a place in the Marvel Universe, it's just the way that their stories have been written and a lot of their characterization comes 
coming up through these different titles in the modern era of where they've appeared, I don't particularly care for them. I never really did to begin with. The one that I probably liked the most is probably Ben Grimm Thing, because when I was a kid, saying it's clobbering time was really fun, because you get, like, you get the matching thing and Hulk fists, and then you fight your cousin. <laughs> okay, I love your description of that. But just like to be a little bit silly for a second, I actually kind of think it's clobbering time is a very childish catchphrase in terms of the sort of like the near viscosity of the syllabic quality. Like, it's clobbering time. Like, it's got such... I can imagine Brad Garrett saying it when he's frustrated that he can't find his glasses. So it's kind of got this kind of like... kind of feel to it. And like, yeah, it's a really kiddie thing to play Scream. I really get that. See, and like, you guys like, it's clobbering time. Like, when I used to go out to the clubs all the time, I used to be like, flame on. So, you know. You know, I actually was like, where is he going with this? And then I was like, what's the Hulk's catchphrase? You're puny! Wait. <laughs> <laughs> that might not be it. Alright. No. The Fantastic Four, and especially with them being characters established for so long, and them not doing a damn thing when it comes to certain characters in the universe's rights especially when their son was a mutant for a while before that was redacted I did not care for the way that they were portrayed. I think that if they took a much more comedic wacky approach to the wacky family misadventures of the Fantastic Four I probably would be into it. I think maybe that's how you can get me on board with that team. I don't particularly jive with the ubiquitous members of the Fantastic Four which is why like when Nico said like oh it's she-Hulk, Miss Thing, Scott Lang, and Medusa. I was like, I would read it because those are characters I find much more interesting. Oh my gosh, you have to read that line. That was like amazing. <laughs> well, I, I before I can do that, baby's got to read Matt Fraction's Hawkeye so I can read everything Kate Bishop and then I will get to there. <laughs> so in this appearance, and maybe, maybe I'm falling uh, as one might say if you're watching a reality television show, I'm falling victim to the narrative in that you're falling for that producer edit. It feels Ooh. Like, if they need heroes to be jerks and assholes and to say no, they oftentimes use the Fantastic Four for that. We saw that kind of through Empire, even before that, in the early Hoxpox era and how they interacted with the mutants and when Franklin was still a mutant and all that stuff. They were often the characters. It feels like Marvel's been using these characters as the ones to say no to a situation and make the scapegoat bad guy. And it's like, maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe I am falling victim to their narrative. Doesn't matter. I believe it right now. So there are people here kind of goes in line with what I've been seeing them as of recently and they're not made when they've been made appearances is where they've been antagonistic to our heroes or the people we're following. Now this all kind of brings me to an interesting perspective something that this issue caused me to think about is I was like okay who in the Marvel Universe right now represents a form of order that everybody isn't going uh he's a bad dude you know I'm trying to think about who in the entire Marvel Universe is a leader where everybody's not like, I heard he kills his own people and feeds them the sharks. Like, <laughs> Xavier and Magneto, everybody's like, those old queens are banging and they're evil. Like, and then... <laughs> 
over in Shang Chi, everybody's like, "Did you guys hear? He knows kung fu and he's evil." And then, <laughs> why do you sound like you're going to tell us where New York's hottest club is? Okay, <laughs> I couldn't tell you, but that is the narrative, and you're falling for it. Okay, so then over here, everybody's like, you know, they're like, "Oh, Reed Richards keeps people's families locked in the." I can't do it anymore. Reed Richards keeps people's families locked in the negative zone, and he doesn't. I can't. But you know what I'm saying? The you know, and because I was thinking, you know, who is usually in that role but isn't? Iron Man. Iron Man is kept very busy by two really brilliant things. Number one, he's tangled up in the Avengers Million BC story, which I love so much. And number two, he's tangled up in his own Korvac saga. So, you know, Iron Man, who's going to appear in the next issue of Shang-Chi, is sort of off the board. But Shang-Chi, being a good guy leading a sort of corrupt situation, sort of seems to be the Marvel Universe's M.O. right now. And I think one of the important things about this Reed Richards appearance and this, you know, for the most part, full Fantastic Four appearance was that it almost served to remind us Shang-Chi's not a horrible guy. He's doing the best he can with a rather morally ambiguous situation where he's surrounded by the equivalent of ninja pirates. But Shang-Chi himself isn't really doing anything that the mutants or the the family Baxter aren't. And I think that was a really important point of comparison. How did you guys feel about the idea that we were meant to see both, you know, Reed and Shang-Chi as suspect here? Or am I the only person who immediately goes, Reed Richards, uh, okay, he's got a fade, he's got streaks, and he's sus. Reed Richards is always sus. Like that's sus. Yeah. Like Matt sus. Like like Ugh. scroll cow meat sucks. <laughs> like he's like, playing among us. Yeah, he's always been that guy who's like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna do all these mad sciencey things, but I know better than you, so stay the fuck away from my toys because you might hurt something, even though I probably almost caused the universe to get conquered before. You know what? I don't disagree with your assessment, and I still trust him more than Beast. <laughs> yeah. It's an interesting moral question if you look at it. Reed Richards is well within his rights to say no to a task, but also he's kind of being rude about it and it's not really moral. It's Is he doing it for the right reasons? Because he's assuming that Shang-Chi is doing something bad with the Five Weapon Society. And it's not really fair to paint Shang-Chi in a negative light. If you trust Shang-Chi but you don't trust his organization, that just seems weird. Now then you ask, well, Shang-Chi doesn't have the right to break into somebody's place even if it did end up saving his mom. If his mom wasn't there, there is nothing morally for him to stand off. Well, you know, I just kind of gotta hop in for a hot swoopy-doop. Why are you assuming this is his mom and not a nihilist in a dress? I'm not... (laughs) A nihilist has learned how to do flawless makeup, okay? (laughs) Oh my goodness, Miko. Wow. That's my nihilist impression. A nihilist sounds like static and shit. That's my nihilist impression. How lovely. All we know as of right now is that Chung Chi thinks this is his mom. So that's what we're going off of. You know, I did have that thought too, though, when I was when I was reading, I was like, how do we know that's really his mom? Ooh, yeah, smart. I mean, there's a lot of horrifying nightmare creatures that exist in the negative zone, and it would not be the first time that something piggybacked on a sense of darkness. Let's not forget that there was sort of an ominous ending. So for me, I think that the big problem is that Shang-Chi isn't getting the message out that he's trying to reform the Five Weapons Society. And that is causing a lot of unnecessary conflict with all of these other 
other heroes, issue after issue. It's something that could easily, I mean, it, I wouldn't say, I shouldn't shouldn't say easily fixed. No, but I agree with you. At least be addressed without him having to fight all of these heroes issue after issue. I completely agree with that. I think this wouldn't be the first time that a powerful hero in the Marvel Universe took over a group of questionable content like this is not the first time that's happened so i do think he should be able to disseminate his message a little bit easier and speaking of disseminating that message we've managed to wax poetic for 20 minutes about this issue without ever really saying what happens and i think that's one of the things i love the most about this title i really do feel like i get my 399 when i read shang chi that's something that i really appreciate i do feel like there is a one and done to every issue but it also fits into a larger narrative in the context of this issue shang chi is visited for four nights by the ghost of what he believes to be his sister, who he hasn't seen since the end of the previous miniseries. Brother Hammer is certainly a presence in this title, whether or not they are appearing, which is one of the things that I also think makes this book so powerful. There is such an overwhelming sense of Shang-Chi's family. We have two different brother staffs that we've met at this point. Of course, everybody's pretty obsessed two issues in with his new mutant sister. But that was one of the other core tenets of this issue. It was about Shang-Chi journeying to the negative zone to follow up on portents he's received through dreams to save his sister. It ultimately turns out to be he believes his mother, and it puts him in an unfortunate position to come up against the, the Richards family when he has to break into the Baxter building in order to achieve his goal. Now, the idea that family is just sort of fucking family is a humongous part of what we're reading, and I think when we talk about family, we do need to talk about the Fantastic Four. How did you guys feel about this different juxtaposition of the idea of family in the title. Jonah, I know that you're somebody who appreciates a found family narrative, and that's one of the reasons I maybe find it surprising that you're not the biggest Fantastic Four fan, that the found family narrative is such an enormous element of the family foursome as they are. But here, Shang chis family, while they might be blood-bound, some of them, you know, oh, is that one of father's other mistresses? Now is not the time! I very much understand that that must be one of the things that draws you to this story. How did you feel about that juxtaposition, Jojo? So, doing my research, no spoilers, but after seeing the movie, I was like, okay, I need to know exactly how many siblings does this character canonically have? And it's a lot. Some are dead, some are still alive, and a lot of them are half-siblings. And I was like, oh, cool. His father gets around. <laughs> Relatable. They represent, to me, a little more of an interesting narrative about family where they're not specifically, well, here they're defined by their blood. They don't have to be, and it's what shang is trying to prove despite his other two siblings, brother Saber and sister Dagger. But what I find so fascinating about their interactions is how different and similar they really are. And I don't always get that from the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic Four doesn't always feel like a found family to me. It feels like the family of Reed and Sue with Johnny and Ben being the wacky uncles that pop in and out every now and then. It doesn't actually feel like a real found family. I enjoy the the way that the X-Men treat found family a little bit better than the Fantastic Four does but that's beside the point. I really think it's an interesting person that you bring up about these two different families and how they approach dynamics and how they approach each other as well as situations when they're funded with them. I never thought of the Fantastic Four as a found family. They always seemed like, kind of like what Jojo was saying, like an old 1960s nuclear family where you got like mom and dad and then you got like mom's like wacky bisexual brother. They're 2.5 <laughs> on fire kids. <laughs> 
Yes, and they're two point five on fire, kids. Herbie, he's a he's the point five, I think. So, like, oh, Herbie, oh, the Herbie appearance was everything. Good call, saying Herbie. <laughs> <laughs> and they always seemed less like found family, but like a really close family that was dysfunctional. At least at first, they obviously become much more dysfunctional, but they were less realistic in that way to me. They were always more like the idealistic family that you want to like strive that everybody thinks they want to strive to have but like maybe it would be a little bit boring i love how shang chi's family even though they are a lot more related there's a, there's a lot more found family there's a lot more built-in dysfunction because of the different ways they were raised i'm digging to see shang chi's family have to go up against that like iconoclastic like you know norman rockwell marvel family the fantastic four the fantastic four is kind of like if friends was specifically only about monica and ross and every now and then chandler and joey popped in oh my god oh, what you oh. described is just that is that There's is so a, much accuracy in that wow that is such a description that i'm not even sure what to do with it now one of the things that's so fascinating about shang chi as a title is with how almost overburdened it is with both new characters that need to be completely developed for the audience to be able to connect with them and classic characters that appear in a sense i guess to help boost sales we wind up with a title that still manages to have room for its narrative titular hero one of the things that's so interesting about making shang chi the voice and the, the narrative focal point of this title is that i think as many of us as are reading this title excitedly for who the character has become in his place in the ever-expanding marvel universe in light of his inclusion of the marvel cinematic universe we're, we're seeing this character come into his own and we're kind of getting that in the moments between all of these other things we're talking about throughout our coverage of Shang-Chi, one of the things that has received the least discussion is the growth of the character himself. And I think that's because so much of the story that we're getting sources out of kind of a one-sentence catch-all for who the character is. He is a dutiful man who is fighting against the rising tide of darkness from both within and without. How do you guys feel about the continuing evolution of the character? I think not in a reductive way, but I don't think I've seen the character change much in the, at this point, 14 issues that we've covered i think what we're seeing is the world orient around a fixed point of character in shang chi how do you guys feel about a character that all three of you openly admit you're not as well versed in his classic years but find yourself very drawn to what you're reading now the way I see it is it's not a matter of him adjusting to the world, but more of him adjusting to the Five Weapon Society. We're, we're seeing him learning how to deal with the members of his family and kind of how to use their own learned tendencies against them to do what he wants. And I kind of see that as pretty smart oh yeah i mean he is absolutely a brilliant character a very clever character with specific desires that he works towards the like i yeah i definitely agree he is a very smart character right now marvel has given basically shang chi to a few writers to help create a, a strong voice for the character whereas at least the years that i was able to see the character he was more of a guest star jumping around from title to title in like you know different books so he never really had a chance to have his own voice his own narrative like he would just show up and like help teach kung fu or like when the x-men went to hong kong 
Wong or, or whatever. So just to have both Gene Yang and uh, Alyssa Wong be so involved in the character in the last few years, we've been able to see more of a seamless voice for the character and get more of a real sense of what's going on and a real narrative that's gone from point A to point B and not like, oh, hey, cool, cameo guest star, cameo guest star. So in question and answer form, like I'm in a pageant. So Shang-Chi is the focus of the narrative uh, as a character that we're not well versed in, but really do enjoy. And that's because Shang-Chi, I think, has the already established characteristics to make an interesting protagonist to follow around. He has a lot of traits that you, when you look at him and you put him on paper and you list everything out, it makes it easy to root for him, to be excited by what he can do, and be excited to see how he will handle any situation given to him. And I think that's what marks a good character. He's a character that probably didn't have a lot of fanfare prior to the announcement of his movie and all this promotion to get people hyped for this character that they might not have known. And it's pretty telling that they can do this with a character that, even though he's not well known, it's exciting to follow him. He has these really interesting defined characteristics. He has this interesting enough backstory where you're intrigued by what exactly happened with his father. It makes you want to go back and read everything about the Five Hand Society before it was under Shang-Chi's control. I think he's a character that was given the right uh, set of tools to succeed in a comic format. If you think about the Dazzler Solo series, it's a horrible series to me, even as a huge Dazzler fan, where they did it the wrong way, where Dazzler was almost like a guest star in her own book. And week after week or month after month, she would have different guest star from across the Marvel Universe to try to establish her as a ingrained character. At least in this book, Shang-Chi gets to have the agency, and there's a lot less misogyny in this book than in the Dazzler book. So he's meeting all these characters, but he gets to help solve the problem instead of being on a ride in his own book. So that's yes, an amazing thing. But was Shang-Chi a canonical Herald of Galactus? I think not. Now, I love that deep cut, Jojo. But you know, that actually makes me think of something really incredible, Nathan. I really love that you said that. One of the things that I can't help but think about in terms of what might have led to that is at the time, Dazzler was pretty much treated like, um, and you know, I use this term critical of the time, not encouraging of it, but Dazzler was treated as the female. And frequently the people she was guesting alongside were men or women to be competitive with. Now, one of the things that they're doing that is brilliant is they're entrusting an Asian voice in the form of Shang-Chi to Asian voices. And by having Asian writers come in and infuse the world with Asian characters who have true-to-life voices, I think what we're seeing is a sort of clever way to avoid having the risk of Shang-Chi feeling like a novelty in his own title, which is, I think, frequently what was the problem for Dazzler. Dazzler was treated like a novelty in her own book, and mm-hmm. look, the audience already thought she was a novelty. She was the disco singing mute. You didn't need to remind us she was a novelty in her novelty book. What you're saying, Nico, is that Dazzler was literal sexy lamp. Oh. Yes. Oh. <laughs> she turns me on. You know, that's just what it is. Next issue, we see that Shang-Chi is going to come face-to-face with the man who made the Marvel Universe a household name, Iron Man. Now, Iron Man in the films is never going to really be able to meet Shang-Chi in the films due to the fact that, I'm not even going to say why, I don't have to say why, everybody saw Endgame. So, I (laughs) also think it's of note that this Shang-Chi is not the film Shang-Chi, not in backstory, not in motivation, and not in abilities. That tells us that whatever is about to happen next
next is a story that's going to exist to further the characters in the comic universe in their own story, not as an element of further promoting the films. So I find myself really excited about the possibility of what we're going to come up in with the next issue. I'm still hoping for like another sibling to pop up. I think that would be fun. That's not, I mean, we got his mom. So like, I guess technically that counts as another family member, but I want specifically another sibling because I feel like five of them will be a good number. The five weapon society. So we have, we already have sister staff. We have uh, brother hand. We have brother saber and we have sister dagger. We had brother hammer, but brother hammer is currently who Shang-Chi thought he was having dreams of, but no, he's having dreams of his mom. That sounds really Freudian. <laughs> That's really um, low. I thought I was having dreams about my sister, but it's really just my mom. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I am also hoping for a lot more reintroduction of character ties of how Shang-Chi's already established bonds with the existing Marvel characters and how these are being challenged with him running the Five Hand Society. How is the rest of the world reacting to this? How would the rest of the Avengers react to this? I just recently read Young Avengers Child Crusade and whatever you feel about that book, it did make the point that a lot of Avengers started off as villains. So like, they're given a lot of shit to Shang-Chi when a lot of them can't be throwing stones in those glass houses. Cap Quirky Quartet was like all villains except for Cap. And I would love to see more of this family dynamic just develop. You know something's got to be going on with his mom coming back from the negative zone. You know, hopefully it is his mom and, you know, maybe there's just the years of it has done the damage because it would be really tragic if they pulled like a Peter Parker's parents thing where it was where Peter Parker's parents came back and it wasn't really Peter Parker's parents. It was, you know, chameleon or whatever it was but it would be really amazing to see that story continued because you know there's got to be more there for me i'm hoping that we break out of this hero as monster of the week formula so i i kind of hope that tony is not as against shang chi as everybody else has been or as naive as as cap was you know, I gotta be honest, if anybody understands doing some pretty questionable shit for a good purpose, I feel like it should be Tony motherfucking Stark. It should be, yes. The only other thing that I want is a little more time with the shadowy figure that keeps appearing before the new family members. That This is what, the second issue in a row where he's shown up and we've gotten like one panel of them? Yeah, I feel like they're trying to play a long game with that, where they're slowly pulling us toward, is it his father? Is it his uncle? And I appreciate the long draw of it, but in a world where I'm never positive any book is going to get to six issues, I don't have the emotional wherewithal to play that game for very long without feeling like I need to be concerned that they're going to cancel this when the next Marvel movie gets set up. You know, when the Marvels is coming out, is Shang-Chi still going to be a scheduling concern? Right. 